You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to episode 373 of Video Monsters. I'm Nathan. I'm Eric. I'm Dan. And tonight, we're here to remember what you've forgotten as we discuss the Shining miniseries with Wolf McGreedy. Say hello, Wolf. Hello, Wolf. Yay! It's it's never not funny to me. <laughs> it is never not funny. like a cowbell or something every time. I know we talk about this all the time, but like, we need a, you need a clip or something, Nathan, to throw on that soundboard there. I, I really just, do. It's just fun. Just good fun. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't go wrong with the classics, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of classics. Speaking of classics. Oh, we're talking about a classic tonight. <laughs> yeah. We, we are. You, yes, go ahead. You mean we're talking about the only good adaptation of The Shining? Ooh. Is, that, is that what we're talking about tonight? Strong words. Those I, I, strong words I may not entirely disagree with. Mm. I mean, yeah, we'll get there. Dan's going to kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I've, got, I've got opinions on this film, that's for sure. I'm excited. I kind of hope that we are not all in agreement because this can be a fun one to get fighty over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally for sure. So, so yeah, we uh, we're, we're not quite kicking off the King series because we did our intro episode, but kicking off our actual uh, deep dive analyses that we do with uh, with The Shining. And I am so so glad that we are because I man, geez, not even recently, almost a year ago, we did our New Year New View where uh, mm-hmm. Eric rewatched The Shining, uh, not for the first time, but for the first time in a while. And, uh, well, it was the first time I had rewatched it. I'd only oh, seen it oh, really? prior to that. Oh, see, yeah. I thought that you had seen it before, and like it just never really stuck, and, and it finally did. Well, yeah, I'd just seen it the one time before. This was my first rewatch, so it's the second time I'd watched the movie. Wow. Dear okay. Lord. Yeah. I've still only seen the, the, the Stanley Kubrick Shining twice. That's... that's I'm pretty sure I've seen it look year and a half <laughs> <laughs> the look of disapproval in dan's eyes right now is just staggering i'm pretty sure i saw it twice before i was 10 <laughs> <laughs> well that explains a lot um, it, it really does <laughs> the look I, of disapproval. I watched it for the first time when i was like 19 so <sighs> yeah the, the look of disapproval yeah. on dan's face is warming my heart uh yes yeah, so we did our new year new view and eric the first time that you saw kubrick shining you didn't love it, did you? No, I kind of disliked it, honestly. Like, I really didn't. <laughs> you actively I think it was one of those it. things where, yeah, like, I'm not quite actively hate, but it was like a genuine, like, I don't like this movie. And that was one of those kind of like hot take hills that I died on for a long time. Um, 
but yeah, I think the big thing for me was that my entire life, I had heard so many people talk about The Shining as the scariest movie ever made. And when I watched it, I was like, I don't really think this is that scary. <laughs> well, that's like that thing. That's that problem coming to things late in life, too, isn't it? Like where yeah. we're told this, you know, oh, Jaws, I mean, Jaws is my favorite movie of all time. And so many people will tell you, oh, it's got, you know, this scariest moment, this scary. Moment. And it's just, I, yeah, I mean, it's all subjective, right? And especially late in life, if, if you didn't grow up with it, you know, I'm, I'm probably with Dan where I probably saw it a handful of times before I was, you know, 10. Um, and yeah, it had a big impact on me, but scariest movie? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that for me, I don't, I wasn't prepared for how just like fucking operatic. It, I mean, in terms of like the acting, mm. it is so so over the top and so beyond anything resembling reality and it wasn't necessarily that like it was a it's a it's a style of performance let, let uh, me ask and you by this performance, i mean just sheer legitimate terror on the part of shelly duvall um, had, had you had you read the book before you saw the, the book mo- okay no. and you, I had, you have sense though yes i read it in between my initial viewing and my rewatch and I okay. adore the book. Like it is, yeah, in my me top too. Five Stephen King books of all time. It is yeah. incredible, especially as a father. I just find it to be one of the most. It's it's one of only two Stephen King books that has ever made me cry. Um, okay, what was I, the other one? I, uh, the dark, the last Dark Tower book. Okay. So, um, hold, Eric, hold on to those tears because uh, I I want to talk about that when we get to the ending of the miniseries. The, yeah. yeah, so so I'm, I'm right there with you with the, uh, you know, like showing up to things late in life because like for me it was the same thing with The Exorcist of like, oh my God, The Exorcist is like yeah, the same. scariest movie of all time. And I only watched it for the first time like two or three years ago, three or four years ago, whenever the fuck it was that we did our uh, our episode on it. And like it's, it is a great movie. It is undeniably an amazing movie that like is, is filled with dread and to think about it, it's terrifying. But watching it, there was nothing about it that like scared me. And because I've watched so <laughs> many horror movies, there wasn't like that. This is the movie that you know like stuck with me and and like fucked me up as a kid. And and now that's why I love horror, but hate horror. It was just like, yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. I, I love it. It's great. It's scary. Eh, it's fine. Um, See, I, I didn't find The Exorcist terribly scary until I went to Georgetown one night. And walk down those steps on like a foggy evening. Oh yeah, and then you are like motherfucker. This shit is real. <laughs> like I, it's one of those things that it doesn't become scary until you're like literally in that moment. It's I mean it's a bit off because that house did not does not exist in real life, but the staircase is very 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 real. It's very uh, very very. You fell and there and broke the down there towards the end, and it gets very very foggy. Um and yeah. Ever since I've watched that, ever since like since I I've been there physically. Now when I go back and watch it, I get bigger chills for some reason than when oh, I watched yeah. it first. I I grew up Catholic. I grew up Catholic, so uh, it's just ingrained in me to be afraid of The Exorcist. Like that is <laughs> it's kind of my birthright to be afraid of The Exorcist. Understandably oh, so. 
Uh, and like I, I how think, for pain, I have to read Stephen King by law. Exactly. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so it, it is, it is actually a relevant comparison because the thing that makes the exorcist so scary that like I had heard growing up was, you know, like all of the devil stuff, like all the devil stuff is just like, eh, so whatever. The thing that makes, uh, the, the exorcist so terrifying is what actually happens to Reagan. Like seeing the first hour of her just being this sweet little girl and then seeing, you know, seeing her possession and, and everything that happens to her throughout the movie as a parent, that is what is so terrifying. Relating that back to The Shining, since that's what we're talking about, like that's part of what makes this so terrifying is it's not what necessarily happens. It's those relationships. And we're going to dive into that in, in just a minute. But before we start getting it too far down our rabbit hole of, uh, of analysis, Wolf. Why yeah. did you want to cover this movie? Because typically we start, you know, like with the, the Video Monsters uh, summary and recommendation. But uh, we're, we're mixing it up a little bit and starting with the, the guests giving us why this movie. Like why in, in all of the different King properties? Because we opened it up not just to theatrical, so obviously, which again, love that we're starting with a miniseries and not one of these <laughs> theatricals. Of all of the uh, King properties, why the Shining miniseries? Because I think it's the one that deserves the most love that gets the most shit. Um, I think it's, you know, I joked about the thing about adaptation at the beginning, but that's only like half a joke. Um, <laughs> I think that it is a pretty faithful adaptation, especially for something that was on ABC, you know, network television originally. Um and I think, yeah, I mean, I think the things that the Kubrick film does uh, wrong, uh, this this more than makes up for it. It definitely has its short shortcomings. Um, but yeah, I think it's a pretty great adaptation. Like rewatching it this week, I was just like, man, this is this is pretty good, and it is bolstered by three really strong performances um that have their again have some some bumps in the road but um you you mentioned last night uh that it Steven Weber's acting kind of felt stage like in in a way yes. and honestly the thing the thing i like about this is that the whole thing kind of feels like a stage play um you know it's this great big set i mean it is the hotel but you know there's that there's this really wornderful scene with he and rebecca de mornay where which was kind of unheard of for the time where it's like a 10 minute long scene for a tv miniseries and like you know it's it's my favorite scene of the entire series yeah and it feels like like a stage thing so i just think it's a really unique adaptation um i i think that it gets a lot of uh dislike and a lot of vitriol and i just think that that is completely bogus um so i wanted to take some time to champion what i think is actually one of the better uh not only better king adaptations but really one of the better things that they put on tv so mm. I am not going to disagree with anything that you just said. Uh, I'll, I'll explain myself in a minute in regards to uh, Weber's performance. But I, when, when we start actually uh, talking about his performance, um, I'm, I'm so glad that we're starting with this one because of all of those reasons. This is the first time that I've seen the Shining miniseries, and and I loved it. I I loved 
97% of those seconds. Uh, there were a few things that I did not love. Mostly the shrubberies. Um, but like <laughs> the topiary. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Yeah. The, I was so concerned when the topiary showed up because I'm like, oh, they're actually doing this. Because when I, when I read it in the book, I was like, there's no way that anybody would ever try to do this on film. And then whenever it happened, I was like, oh shit, they're really going to go for it. The, so the, the topiaries in and of themselves, I didn't mind. And I actually kind of like the, the fact that it was topiaries rather than a hedge maze. It's when they made them CGI and actually start yeah. crawling towards Danny. It's just like, Oh, they actually handle it really well up until they use CGI. Like they do it like the fucking doctor who, creatures i don't remember what they're called but the ones that you that move when you're not looking at them the, the uh, weeping the angels. angels the weeping angels yes these yeah these the two the oh, two yeah, real the two real fun bits of of cgi are are the topiary and the fire hose and both of them were like <laughs> two of the most expensive things on television ever at the time right it's just incredible effects so yeah i mean now <laughs> What's that? I said I would have been happier if like someone had literally just like off camera had been shaking a tree branch. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's also that style. thing of like it's yeah. it's that thing of when I watched this originally, that was the coolest shit in the world to me. <laughs> like that was like it yeah. looked, you know, in nineteen ninety seven I was like, Yeah, yeah, that's that's dope. Um, fair, so yeah. yeah, it's weird to it's weird to look at it through the lens of time, you know? Well, I was I was also just the, as you were saying, you know, watching it in '97. I was like, yeah, if I was watching this in '97, it would have been on a 23 to 27 inch TV rather than mm-hmm. my 65 inch monstrosity, where it's just like, oh, I can see like all of the flaws. I can I can see the uh, the string that they're using to pull the swings back. And if it was you know on a, on a tiny little TV, there's no way that you would have seen that. Uh, but but yeah, like I've never read The Shining and. I've only seen Kubrick's version and I've seen it a lot and I never, I had heard some of the, like, Oh, King Higgs uh, hates the, the, this adaptation. He thinks that it's trash because it strays so far from the original book, but I had never read the book. So I never had that as context. It was always just, this is a great movie. The, uh, mm-hmm. the, the arguments of Kubrick is overrated. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I love his movies, but I also understand why he's overrated. And like Eric, when you were talking about like how like just grand and operatic it was, and I was like, yeah, it's very Kubrickian. Like all of his movies, they they have that same sort of like this is an amazing movie where his head is so far up his own ass, but it's still such an amazing movie. <laughs> and also he did terrible things to make those movies great and you know, separating the person from the art from like all of that conversation that surrounds it. But even 2001, which I've, I've mentioned a number of times, I adore that movie. It is, it, it, it's, it's dumb. Like, it is just pure <laughs> visual spectacle. It is not a, an entertaining movie. I adore it, but I adore it as art, not entertainment. And that's fine. It's, Eric, you laugh at that. Sure. But there's a number of movies like that. Well, uh, it was just, I laughed at you calling it dumb. I was like, oh, that was, that was not what I, I thought you were going to say boring. <laughs> no, it's, it's not stupid. It is very intellectual, <laughs> but it's also kind of dumb. But but again, I, I adore it. And so the same thing with <laughs> The Shining, <laughs> where Kubrick's version 
It is very over the top, and 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 I I think that it is an amazing movie, but that's all that I knew of it. I I haven't read King's book, but watching uh, some more movies uh, based off of King's um, work, and finally starting to read King because, as I've mentioned a number of times, woefully underkinged, and still so far have only read one actual King book. Um, but getting a little bit more of like King's voice in his stories and then watching the shining miniseries, not, not even that far into it. I think that I was maybe 15 minutes in and I was like, Oh yeah. Steven Weber is way more of a King protagonist than, uh, than Jack mm-hmm. Nicholson. And because he's not crazy from the jump. Exactly. And mm-hmm. mm, so I want to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the differences between Kubrick and, and the miniseries, but I don't want to dwell Please. on it. I don't want us to dwell on it because I want us to focus on the miniseries mm-hmm. and, and shine all of the praise except for the CGI uh, topiary. I, I want us to shine so much praise on this because I legitimately loved uh, this miniseries. But I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those differences. The, yeah, I mean, I think the the right right from the jump is is Stephen Weber's Jack Torrance. Like, there there's nothing. Listen, the Kubrick movie is a good movie. It is not a great Shining adaptation, and a lot of that has to do with how low the stakes are, because Jack Nicholson is crazy immediately. Yep. And like, and it just, he, he is menacing. He is a danger to his family. We don't get the loving kind of, uh, care that you see with the rest of, of, you know, the family in, in the miniseries. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's the biggest thing. And you, we touched on it earlier, but it's the idea of making you care about these characters and I think like the di- the family dynamic between Rebecca De Mornier, uh, Stephen Weber, and Cortland Mead in the miniseries is just wholesome, and yeah, you get you get that they have gone through a tremendous amount of pain and suffering, but they're really trying to make it work. And it's I think it's really beautifully done, and the keyword in big bold letters for the Kubrick movie is just fear. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Sorry, Eric, you look like you're about to say something. No, I mean, I, that's, that's a hundred percent how it is for me. Like in the, the book. And I, I think it's so it's, it's understandable why King is so, you know, why this, why the shining is practically the only movie adaptation of his that he has ever criticized. And I was reading on, on Wikipedia, at least apparently one of the, uh, he had to like get Kubrick to sign off on doing the miniseries, and he basically just Stephen King just had to agree to no longer criticize <laughs> the, the Kubrick version of The Shining in public anymore to make this miniseries, which I think is really fascinating. Um, but no, like in the book, it gets so clearly this incredibly personal story for Stephen King. Probably the, I mean, he, I feel like he is like a very he's a very he's very nakedly emotional and very very nakedly autobiographical in almost all of his stories you know like almost every one of his stories are about writers and teachers and he's putting so much of himself into them and there's no other novel of his that he puts more of himself into than the shining like you get the sense that this is like him truly reckoning with some of his demons whether it be 
addiction or you know the the animosity that he has felt toward his children and how much that just eats him up inside and and, and yeah it's just it's such a beautiful like purge of emotion for him you can tell and so of course like the fact that Kubrick throws out all of the heart and soul of the novel and his version in favor of just making something that's incredibly atmospheric yeah yeah um it's totally understandable and and it's it's interesting that he was so adamant about getting this right that he decided to like take on the miniseries himself because like Stephen King he's written a lot of like screenplays and teleplays and stuff um but he's not produced very much of his work I think he only gets a producer credit on like four or five of his adaptations and this is one of them so like this is absolutely a passion project for him he wanted to get it right um but yeah, I, again, I, I totally, just to echo what you were saying, Wolf, I think that it's this, the key difference between this and Kubrick's Shining is that you get these little moments in between all the horror where the family is together and they're having a good time and you can sense that they love each other and care for each other deeply. You know, like when they get the first snow, they go outside and play as a family and the, the miniseries takes time to like show you that, like show you the happiness that they could achieve if it weren't for all of jack's demons that he's struggling with yeah and i mean they it they they, not to cut you off but they just they keep achieving like nearly bliss and then something undercuts it and it's just so heartbreaking it's so and that's what you know obviously that's what the novel does so well but i think mick garris and king in the writing really do really are able to get that with this miniseries and it is a failing of the film and it's it what the, the the unfortunate thing is none of the performers in the film are incapable of achieving that it was a right. direction of the writing and the directing and not you know jack nicholson doesn't have to be crazy from the jump you know like that he doesn't have to be the joker yeah. right right, right. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so, um, yeah. Dan, before I give my thoughts on, on this, because uh, my thoughts are both related, but also uh, may- maybe diverging from both Wolf and Eric a little bit, what are some of your thoughts on, on the, uh, the differences between the movie and the miniseries, especially as it relates to, uh, to, uh, to Jack Torrance and just the, the whole relational emotional aspect? See, here's where y'all is wrong. Uh, oh, no. not really. <laughs> not on this point. Um, Jack is Jack, and Jack will always fucking be Jack. Nicholson is coasted on pe- playing that crazy character in you know seventy percent of his, the films he's done, and Kubrick let him really dive into that here. It's a good character, but it is not jack torrance it's just right. not um as, as you talked about at this point in his life king was really grappling with whether or not he was even a good dad yeah you know he he had finally found success but along with that success he had found alcohol and drugs and was really concerned about his capabilities as a father and that really comes through in this and what really comes through in the book as well was 
you can still love that person even when they're dangerous to you. You know, and while while Wendy uh, in the movie was able to still kind of put that through, the kid really couldn't. I don't feel like it was. You can see why he is scared of Jack at all times. Cause it's fucking Jack Nicholson. Um, right. Take one yeah. look, like, oh, no, I don't want to be in the scene anymore. No, thanks. Whereas, you know, Steven Weber, it's that guy from fucking Wings, man. He's cool. <laughs> you know, he can be my dad. Um, I want him and, to be my dad. Yeah. And, and Weber, I think, really got that part really, really well where he balanced what it's like to be a caring dad, but still when, you know, you're in the thralls, what you're doing is all that matters. And in this case, the addiction, you know, something that wasn't even touched upon in the movie was the research, how addicted he is to the research of the, of the, the, you know, and in the book, it serves a very good purpose because, you know, that's how you, that's, you know, how you learn all about the history. You know, it's he's he's discovering this stuff, and it you know it's mm. a, a it's a it's a well oiled exposition machine in this, mm. <laughs> where of, of of course that's why how you're going to learn all this stuff because he's researching, he's find it, finding it all in the basement, and it's that obsessive nature which is very parallel to his his nature with his other addictions. Mm. He becomes so focused on that that everything else doesn't matter, and he'll snap at you if you're getting in the way of that. And I like that you, you often saw the instant regret once he, once he did yeah. snap. Yes. Um, that's, that's exactly what which I'm is thinking. hard. Cause <laughs> honestly, I, I would snap at Cortland Mead all the fucking time. That kid, <laughs> um, that kid wow. could just come up and offer me a cookie and I'd be like, fuck off child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but actually, also kind of, like I'm on an island by myself here. I kind of like Cortland Mead in this. I think. Oh, I do too. But no, I like Cortland Mead fine. I think I I wanted to shake him by his face at every opportunity, (laughs) and I don't know why. Perhaps, perhaps that is you know my cross to bear when it comes to this film. Um, Uh, But it's hard to get past. Every time he spoke, I wanted to kick him. I'm there with both of you. I think that he did a good job. I think that he was able to match the emotional tone. His acting did not take me out of the scenes. And especially, uh, uh, Dan, you can attest to this, especially in comparison to Firestarter Rekindled and the kids in that fucking movie. Like, (laughs) there's no comparison. Like, I, I wanted to shake every single one of those kids. And so, like in comparison, I know one of those kids went on to play Mark Petrie in the TV, the TNT version of Salem's Lot. I was so mad. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I haven't I seen that like, version. Hey, this kid can't catch a break with what he stars in. Seriously? Um, no, he he is a better actor than the original Danny because the original Danny, I don't. Kubrick doesn't like kids. <laughs> when has he ever been warm towards oh. a child in a movie? I, my understanding is that despite how monstrous Kubrick could be, particularly towards Shelley Duvall, like from what I've heard, he's actually he was actually very protective of Danny Lloyd on the oh, set. I'm, I'm he sure he was in real life, takes, like he does with everyone else. Well, that was but, cool of him that he didn't make the child be there for seventeen. Yeah, not, not, that's not really a um, coming to the humanitarian award for that. 
Um, <laughs> but he, that kid is really never given much to do other than look freaked out. Just yes, like, yeah. Kubrick didn't give that kid any favors by giving him a lot of parts to play that would have showcased. And I mean, the kid hasn't been in anything since, really. So maybe he just wasn't capable. And in true Kubrick fashion, he liked the way he looked. Right. So that's yeah, what it's all about the look yeah. I think, for him. Um, and that is, I mean, and that is the one advantage the film has over the miniseries is the miniseries is very bland to look at for me. Other yeah. than a few. With the cool sets, it's very bland. Yeah, I think it's fair. So, I actually kind of think that shooting it at the Stanley Hotel might have been a mistake, even though that was the original inspiration. I yeah. thought the Stanley Hotel was kind of a boring setting, and it's very, it does, especially compared to the Kubrick version. That's such a that set that they have is so gorgeous and so cavernous, mm-hmm. and they feel so small. And I don't feel like they use like the smaller spaces of the Stanley Hotel for like. It doesn't have the kind of claustrophobic feel. It just feels like you're in a, it feels like hotel carpet, you know, like, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's just, I, you're deliberately not supposed to look at it or whatever. But, but here's the thing that I think actually kind of matters. At the very least, it relates to my take on the differences between them. Now, again, I've not read the book, so I cannot make any comments about how closely it relates. But again, even just in watching it, and, and hearing y'all talk about it, like I have no question that the miniseries is infinitely closer and a, a much, much better adaptation. So I'm not necessarily going to talk about how one is a better adaptation than the other because I'm, I'm not going to defend Kubrick's version as a better adaptation, period. I do think it's an amazing movie. There's two things that it's I an think... Inter- for me, not an adaptation. It's so an what? interpretation. Sure, sure, yeah. It's an interpretation. I agree, yeah. Adaptation and and yeah, that, that way if you love the book and and that's the thing like that actually <laughs> relates uh, exactly with I think that there are two main things going on between the differences of uh, Kubrick and and Garris's The Shining. Um, the first one is again just that very Kubrickian style of just very over the top. Everything is you know every single scene is meticulous. Every single scene. Like there's there's a ton of detail that goes into all of it. But I think that the biggest thing is because King and we talked a little bit about this during uh, our intro episode of, you know, just like how hard it is to adapt King and how hard it is to uh, to represent it visually because of how verbose he is and the way that he describes things. The Shining is a long ass book. And so to to be able to take everything that's in the book and try to condense that into a two-hour movie, I think that you would be losing a lot. And so in mm-hmm. in my view of it, and, and again, I'm not necessarily defending Kubrick or saying that this is what I think that he was doing, but the way that I watch it is Kubrick is going more for the tone than the plot. And again, similar to 2001, where yeah. it is art, it is spectacle, it's not necessarily entertainment. So I think that with uh, with Kubrick Shining, yeah, like uh, Jack Nicholson starts out crazy. He starts out already a little bit off. Like, you would look at him, it's like, yeah, I understand why Wendy and, uh, and Danny are already terrified of him. And that's not the Jack that you get in, uh, in Garris's miniseries. But that's the Jack that you end with in the miniseries. Right. 
One of them is 90-ish minutes. The other one is four and a half hours. So if you only have 90 minutes, and, and I'm not saying that it can't be done. Obviously, other movies take you on that journey, and they can do that. But if you're going to cut out a lot of those little scenes, so like Eric, you said, you don't get some of those uh, those little moments of like them playing in the snow. You don't get some of those things uh, in in the movie. And I think that that's because you don't have time for that. So it's just, let's jump a little bit further into it. Let's jump straight into some of that fear. You know, let's let's build the the tension with the horror rather than with the emotional heart. It's a different take yeah, on well, it. Well, I don't think Kubrick is even interested in that. Again, I'm not like, saying that he was trying to do that. I'm saying that this is how I right. watch it. Like when I watch the Kubrick okay. version, I watch it as... This is going for, you know, the the, uh, the wife and son are already terrified of him, terrified of him, to let you know that something bad is going to be happening. Like you have that sense of I, I have that sense of dread whenever I watch The Shining. Granted, I know what's going to happen because I've seen it before, but there's that sense of dread the entire way through. Of Jack is crazy. When's he gonna snap? Whereas mm. in the miniseries, it's. Oh, Jack, like he's, he's trying, like he's, I mean, he's, he's fallen on hard yeah. times. I, uh, yeah, the hotel is really wearing down on him and, and we'll get to like, yeah, you're hoping, you're hoping he doesn't snap as opposed to waiting for him to snap. Right. Exactly, and, yeah. and again, like in just a second, we're going to completely leave Kubrick behind and just focus on the miniseries because I really <laughs> want to spend so much more time just talking about that. But I feel like this is, is relevant. The the other piece of it, and Eric and I talked about this in uh, in our Shining episode, where Eric, you talked a little bit about how you didn't really feel any of that emotional connection. You didn't really feel some of these things, and I was defending it a little bit with like, no, like this feels like a home that is broken from alcoholism, and it is. And the home in uh, in Garris's version is as well, but they're on two different timelines. With uh, with the miniseries. Jack is trying to get better. He's going to AA. He wants to be better. He doesn't want to relapse. He's trying to mm-hmm. reconnect with his wife. He's like he's doing all of these things because he wants a better life for uh, for him and his family. You know, he's taking the job at the Overlook because not because it's the only thing that he can do, but it's it's hopefully that stepping stone to be able to actually have time to get that book written while also making money. So like. It's, it's all of these very well-intentioned pieces to try to bring this emotional connection. Jack Nicholson plays it almost as just angry that he has to be sober. So, And, and both of those are very yeah. realistic depictions of people battling alcoholism. And, and that's why, to me, I don't necessarily think that the, the, uh, the movie version is like way off base. It's just a completely different angle of... He's not trying to get better. He's angry that that he has to be sober. And yeah, it doesn't play into it as much. And you know, even when he's at the bar and uh, and and he gets that whiskey, like I almost for, I, I always forget that he's supposed to be an alcoholic and trying to stay sober. It was more of just like, mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah, you know. And so like even Wendy's portrayal in uh, in the movie, it's this is the person who she used to love him. And like in the back of her mind, she thinks that she still loves him because you're supposed to love someone, right? But like, there's already that very frayed uh, that we're we're at the end of our rope. Yeah. Like this, ho- hopefully, this can keep us from falling apart. 
whereas in the miniseries, mm. it's we, we can we can do this. We can get better. You know, it's it was just an accident. We can we really can repair this. Right. Yeah. Kubrick's not like a very he's not like a very character focused filmmaker. He, right. I mean, he's as a filmmaker, he's more like a conductor of a symphony and characters are just an instrument in the orchestra, not necessarily the focus as you would get in any other you know from most other filmmakers he's i i think he's often mischaracterized as like very cold and distant i think he's a very emotional filmmaker but it's just that he's more concerned about like evoking emotion out of you the audience member as opposed to necessarily like the characters in the film itself mm-hmm. like it sounds so well, no, I, I can't believe I, I'm about to say it, but it's like you're the protagonist of a Kubrick film. <laughs> Here's the thing. Though, <laughs> I think that that's, that's why that's your point. Enough. I think that that's why your point about oh the the overlook in the miniseries is just kind of boring and drab. I think that that's why it's relevant and matters is because in Kubrick's <laughs> version, the overlook is like yeah, this is one fucking scary ass hotel. In the miniseries, it's like it's a you know. It's an upstate Vermont or Denver, Colorado, wherever the Colorado. fuck they are. It's an it's an upstate Colorado mountain resort. It's <laughs> it's supposed to be boring. It's supposed yeah, you got people out there playing giant croquet. Like it's supposed to feel drab, so that the hotel itself doesn't give you all of these terrifying emotions, because it, it's not supposed to. It's just supposed to be kind of there and empty. And as you are brought into it over the course of of that four and a half hours, like. I think that it's good that the hotel is more boring. Uh, and I don't think that I have anything else really to say at this point in terms of like those major comparisons. We might, we might make some you know minor little notes of like, oh, yeah, I love how they do this compared to Kubrick. But I don't really think there's anything else that I want to focus on with Kubrick at this point. Uh, because, again, I, I want to talk about uh, the miniseries. So let's start with the acting since we've already mentioned that with Steven Weber. Uh, I think that he did – an amazing job and and wolf like you said yeah i did say that he plays to the back of the room in that first uh flashback scene where he's yelling at danny and and he broke his arm oh that scene's pretty rough <laughs> it's it's a very rough scene and i was like all right i want to see where this goes because i love stephen weber i think that he is an amazing actor i know that he can play angry i know that he can play incredibly emotional this feels like an off scene uh, and and Wolf, to mm-hmm. your point of like, yeah, it feels like the entire miniseries feels kind of like a stage production and playing to the back of the room. Yeah, and I, I get that. And it kind of makes sense. I still don't love that scene, but that's the only scene where he got angry that I thought this doesn't feel very good. Like the rest of it, when he was getting angry, when he was yelling, when he was much more in the scene, it's like, no, this th- this feels right. This feels great. But that also is the only scene where he wasn't on camera when he was being angry. And so I think Mm. that you lose a little bit of that nuance. And I think that he did kind of have to play to the back of the room or at least to the back of the camera because he wasn't there. So it was like, all right, how how do I show that I'm drunk and angry by sounding drunk and angry? And I just I, (laughs) I don't I didn't I didn't love it. But that's like the only scene that I didn't love acting wise. Um yeah, I feel like he like if that was what they filmed first, and he tried to give it his Nicholson spin, and it didn't work. So Garrison Garris just was like, "Don't don't do that again, please. We don't have enough money to film it again. Just don't do it in future scenes, please." I would buy that. 
Yeah, because yeah, I think yes. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just I was about to move on. So if you have something, go ahead. No, I'm not move no. on, but like make another point about Weber. Yes, do that. Um, <laughs> make another point. I think uh-huh. his performance is. I think that he is much better in the quieter moments. Like uh, my, it's like some of my favorite moments are whenever, like whenever Danny is has his kind of moment in the bathroom where he's like, you know, his eyes are rolling over and they're coming in and trying to shake him, and he's talking about Tony. And Jack is like literally shaking him, trying to explain to him that Tony isn't real. And he hits his head on the back of the wall. The way that Steven Weber plays that moment where he is like, you see it immediately the regret in his eyes where he's right. like, I've gone too far again. Like I'm getting back to my old ways. Like that is so good. And it's so heartbreaking. And, and I think even after that, there's like a moment where I can't remember if it's around that time or not, but like he like, subtly mentions that he would kill himself before he ever it's right would. it's right after the the arm breaking scene oh it's um, right after that oh okay you're right. yeah and i think that that i was going to mention that scene too uh yeah <laughs> go ahead I'll, I'll i'll loop back to that no no yeah i mean i just think that in those quieter moments where you can just see in his face the immense regret that he feels i do think that when he's angry sometimes he goes a little too big with it especially whenever it's like in the earlier moments where the where it doesn't seem like the hotel has had enough time to like really work itself into him you know I, there's like a moment i think it's in episode 2 where he's like walking into the room and he's like super pissed off because danny has left his toys out and it's like there's literally just like a robot in a chair and then a <laughs> glass of milk on the counter or something he's like oh danny you oh, how many times do i have to tell you and i'm just like dude chill out <laughs> a little bit so so i have a challenge for that Um, And maybe and maybe for that scene where he's, you know, we're just hearing him off camera. I think uh, I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's intentional. Mm. And I think I think it is him channeling his father. And that's why it's so big. And that's why it's so over the top. It's what he grew up with. And that's why. And that's 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 why he flips back and forth. Between more intense moments where he's able mm-hmm. to kind of control it and moments in which he's being way over at the top. And the first real moment that the hotel sinks its teeth into him in a way that he, he breaks is when he hears his father on the radio. I think there's a lot more tied in with his dad than we're, we're spoon fed. Um, yeah. So I think, I think those really big moments are him imitating his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not specifically said, but I I think he is a uh, talented enough performer that he's not going to make mistakes. Well, it's, um, yeah, no, I, it's not directly I, said, I but it I, is directly referenced when he calls him uh, like a pup or, or whatever. A pup. Uh, he calls him a whelp, yeah. a pup. Uh, he's, he's repeating his father's language. That's a big thing from mm-hmm. the book. Um, so yeah, with, with the knowledge of the book as well, I mean, I, I definitely think that it is, and, and it is in those moments where he's being more verbose and more, you know, over the top that he does use that language of his father as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Eric, to, to kind of go back to what you were talking about, that moment where he insinuates that he would kill himself is horrifying. Like it's, it's so heartbreaking. Like it's, 
because you do. It's, it's like you, an offhand remark almost. Where yeah, yeah, like, he says yeah. he says one way or the other, and she asks. She says, "What do you mean by that?" And like you know, he. I mean, he is a deeply. It, uh, he lives with an incredible amount of shame, mm. and it's that shame that uh, informs a lot of his decisions. Um, yeah. you know, even in trying to be a better father, he, it is these, I mean, we're getting into like deeper character study, but like, <laughs> yeah. I, I do think, I do. do think that this shame that he carries with him is, uh, informs a lot of it. And I think it informs a lot of Weber's performance for mm. sure. And I just think that he, he really nails it. I think he, yeah, I do think he's really excellent. And I, there's a part of me that kind of wonders too if like the reason why I kind of buck up against how like over the top angry he gets sometimes is because of how much I do genuinely sympathize with him. And whenever he is acting like a complete asshole, it upsets me that I, <laughs> that like he is being so... an asshole. And like sometimes he's like super whiny about stuff. And there are just parts of me where I'm like, come on, Jack, you can be better. You know, like it just it bothers me so much that he can be such a dick sometimes because you know that he does sincerely like it comes across so often that he just genuinely loves his family. But he just can't. He has all of this rage inside of him that, like you said, I think it comes so much from his father and, you know, the trauma that he endured as a child. Mm -hmm. um, and he just carries that with him and he can't ever really let it go. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's a that's a. Terrific observation. Yeah, I see. It's because of how relatable he is, and because of how much he loves his family. I actually like. Okay, uh, I want to stop myself with the way that I'm phrasing that. I think the way that he plays the scenes when he is angry are done incredibly well and are incredibly effective. It for me, it was only that first scene where he's off camera that it felt a bit too uh, a bit too staged and a bit too overacted. Literally, that scene too is like scene. it goes into slow motion, and it's a little that one. I think just in terms, just it's it's very TV movie. It feels well, like. and, so I think it. And on, it's a also, also in thinking about it, it was a flashback, so it could have been one of them remembering it. I don't remember whose flashback it was. So if it was, um, if it was Wendy's flashback, it could have been like how she was hearing it. So, so there could have been uh, some of that stuff as well. The rest of the scenes where he gets angry. I had no problem with the way that he was acting them, and and the, especially uh, towards the end when the hotel had taken over him and he was a lot more, you know, playing it crazy. I think that he did those really, really mm. well. But all of the ones in between, every scene after the first one and up until he's, you know, crazy angry, I feel like the way that he played his anger is amazing because of, again, I think Weber's just an amazing actor and the way that he's able to switch back and forth and how did uh, the way that he incorporates so much visual acting, Eric, like you said, like you see immediately the regret on his face and uh, Wolf, I love the observation of uh, channeling his father because yeah, the movie does or the miniseries gives you a lot of that. But to to like really note that maybe the reason that he sounds so gruff and the reason that he sounds so like Danny, he's try like he is a bit more soft spoken throughout, and so when the anger comes out, yeah, in his mind maybe he's trying to be more of the. It well, almost you know, comes out as a performance. Yeah, you know, like, like you, is, you have to be a man. You have to, you know, like th this is what men do. Yeah, your medicine. Yeah, you get you got to yeah. your medicine. You, well, your young puppy. This is this and is there what you do. there. 
there's one other thing about the performance too, and I wish it were a little bit clearer in the miniseries because they definitely had time. In the book, towards the end, when the hotel really sinks its teeth into Jack and and fully kind of possesses him, he smashes his face with the croquet mallet and like becomes the the manager. Like that's like I'm pretty sure they start referring to him as that. And like so, in these final scenes in the in the miniseries with Jack, when he affects this this tone and this this way of speaking, that's very kind of old fashioned. It feels like a mix between the things he was doing earlier and the things of his father. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of wish that they had maybe differentiated that possession or that personality taking over completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I think it all just. It makes for a pretty complex performance. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, like I said in the in the intro, one that <clears throat> really doesn't get enough credit. Like, I think it is kind of a career performance for him. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah he's very good. I think he did an amazing job. I, I like... There's one other thing that I want to mention about his performance, though. Or, or at least the way okay. that he plays his anger. Because I don't want us to spend the entire episode just talking about his anger. One of the other reasons that I... Uh, you know kind of disagree with you a little bit eric with the like ah it feels a bit off when he gets angry throughout or like you buck up against it like oh come on you can hold it uh, together better than that i disagree i do not think that he can hold it better together or hold it together better than that because of his alcoholism and yes he is you know five months sober at that point but you know, but he's only five months sober at that yeah, point. Yeah, he's <laughs> only five months sober at that point, and also because of some of the history that you get uh, with the relationship with his father, because of some of the uh, like the stress that you feel with the financial burden, and like with all of the other things, with with the rage that uh, Wendy mentions a few times. I don't think that his addiction was just an addiction. I think that his addiction was self medication. And so for people yeah. who self-medicate using, uh, using drugs and alcohol, when you take away the drugs and alcohol, whatever it was that they were self-medicating is still there. And so like, that's why to me, when he would so quickly get angry, like all of that rage that he would drown in, in whiskey is still there. All of that, that fear uh, of his father and not being a, a good enough father and fear of turning into his father, like all of these things in the subtext of how he's performing, I feel like all of that is still there. And so for me, none of it was incongruent. None of it felt off like the, the performance in the way that he did. Like that's why for me, so much of it felt, you know, a, a, again, like such a great performance is because the, the miniseries takes the time to actually give you more of his background, to give you more of that emotional connection, to give you some of his uh, the AA and alcoholism, like to give you enough of that context to to where anyone who has you know either dealt with uh, any sort of uh, substance abuse, whether it's you know living through it or or in my instance uh, you know counseling people who have been through it, like all of this rings so true, and so like yeah his. He- yeah, go, go ahead, Wolf. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty pretty uh, public about my my uh, recovery, and you know, I as somebody who's over seven years sober, that that idea of 
self-medication and what you're left with afterwards. Uh, like once you, once you, when you make the decision to get sober, if you're not treating the root, you know, the, the, the Jack Torrance is not, not too much of that far off. You know, um, it took me a long time to reconcile that I wasn't an asshole because I drank, I drank and I was an asshole, you know? So, so like coming to, to, it, it it is an interesting place to find him only five months into his recovery. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things that speak true. I mean, obviously because King was writing as a fucking alcoholic, you know, I mean, uh, so, you know, the dry drunk and, and the little ticks and everything, I think, uh, he does Weber specifically paints a really interesting portrayal. And yeah, I definitely agree with you about, uh, that anger and I had justified as the wrong word, but it definitely speaks true to that experience. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it um, yeah. Justify isn't right. It mm, explains it. Um, deep, it, it, it deepens our understanding of, of what he's going yeah. through. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there, there's one other performance that I want to talk about that I don't love the, then we can have all the things that I don't love about this movie out of the way and we can just focus on everything else that I love uh I I don't I don't love Tony I it <laughs> his, his, his performance is fine it's not, it's not about the actor it's just like as fucking creepy as red ram red ram as creepy as that is to have just you know some nerd in glasses it's like oh don't go Typical in there, Danny. 90s dude. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's literally out of any 90s film you could pull that guy out just, of in that exact outfit. Yeah, he's just, you know, like such a 90s putz that it's just like, I don't, I don't, he, it doesn't have that same sort of creepiness. I, I don't, don't funny about that. I don't need to ever see Tony. That's not something I, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. Right. A, that's, that's a total mistake, especially when you, the first time you see him, he's hovering off the ground. Yeah. He makes a sign transform. It's very silly. Um, I just want to mention it's funny that you talk about how this guy's would like, you know, he just looks like a typical 90s putz or whatever, because the actual actor, Will Horneff, is now a like professional uh, MMA person. He like, what? Yeah, I looked him up on Wikipedia. Oh, that's amazing. And he owns and operates a, a jujitsu and MMA like uh, training ground. It's Holy probably shit. because several he's about the movie championships. It's, it's, it sounds too like many, he's, there were too many drinks thrown into his face at the clubs. They're like Tony, Tony, <laughs> and he's like, "Fuck this man!" And, and went and started doing MMA. So it's like what, a, a real Karate Kid kind of story. Well, 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 it's in, so it's interesting, you know. Like I, I can't recall if we ever get a physical manifestation of Tony in the book. I can't remember. But the original the Cemetery Dance recently put out a I don't know how recent, I shouldn't say recently, but they put out a all uh an anniversary edition of The Shining and it included a prologue and an epilogue and apparently the epilogue matches the epilogue of the mini series. So like yeah. so, you know, oh, I heard about I, this. I guess yeah, I guess they kind of 
took that and and ran with it in term or I guess King did really because he wrote it um mm-hmm. but ran with the idea of that same epilogue but um yeah I don't know it's 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 a it's not a great performance honestly and it is a it is a weird addition and Dan yeah I completely agree that we don't need, we don't need to see Tony like that's just not we don't need that. Yes, his performance yeah, especially is just like, an unnecessary this, performance. Like the first, it had been published before the prologue, but the uh, first like a major publication of the prologue. TV guy. TV guy. Yeah, <laughs> you've got it. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. How do you? It's a Bernie Wrightson yeah. cover as well. But yeah, yeah. Oh, Bernie TV guy. Oh. The week that the miniseries came out, this was like the first like wide publication of the prologue. Wow, and you have the is that so? That's an original, right? I mean, like you did oh. you pick that up at a pawn shop or something? Or have you? Oh yeah. It? No, I, I've I've got the TV guide for this, the TV guide for Rose Red, uh, the TV guide for the Stand. You saw that one when I picked yeah. that up, and uh, for Storm of the Century, I have the TV so guides for cool. all. But yeah, that was that has the original, the prologue. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called here. It's it's it starts in the glossy pages, so that's how you know it was a big fucking deal. <laughs> yeah, the glossy pages, the TV guide, the glossy pages, <laughs> which also had art by Wrightson before God, the Bernie Wrightson's art is so good. Man, that's yeah. awesome. Do, do you remember when TV guide used to be a thing that mattered? I was just about to say this is one of those like the kids and the kids who are listening. Like, ask your parents. <laughs> yeah, dude, I, that was my Bible as a kid. I had that shit memorized. My mother would ask me when things were going to be on TV when I was a kid. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I, just, I mean, it certainly helped that we only had like three channels in PBS when I was a kid, but still. Were, were you like me, I was the TV Guide channel? All the time. I was, I was just about to say, were you like the TV Guide channel just walking around, just scrolling through what's coming up? Or like you're just uh, going through the house announcing, you know, at four o'clock, this old house. No, but I always knew when every program on every program I wanted to watch was on. But again, because I was a big time reader as a kid, when we got that, like, because my mother would pick it up at the grocery store on like Saturdays or Sundays for the next week, I would she would get home and while she like unpacked the groceries, she would just hand that to me, and I would spend like the two hours Sunday morning before wrestling and kung fu theater came on, <laughs> I would read the guide. I had it. I had. A, I had a very nerdy childhood, but that's great. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the emotional uh, resonance of this film, uh, this series, it is so much stronger in the miniseries because it takes the time to to give you all of those uh, sweet family moments. Like uh, Eric, I think that you mentioned this earlier, like that ten minute interlude with um, with Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay, and like. Why Why would someone spend that amount of time in a horror miniseries to have them have like this sweet candlelit emotional connection, but this, this absolutely needed it because it would not have been the same without it. And there, there's so much emotional connection. There's so much that's happening that, uh, that the majority of this, uh, the series is not scary, even a little bit like watching it i was never bored i was never bored i was emotionally connected throughout but for most of it it was like 
yeah, I could probably watch this with my four-year-old. It'd, it'd probably be fine. Like, <laughs> nothing scary, well, except for the snake hose thing. But, like, there's nothing happening. It's just kind of there. But it's so needed because it is it is bringing you in. And um, I, I was listening to a little bit of the commentary. I didn't have uh, nine hours to watch it, so I didn't have a chance to watch the miniseries and then immediately go back and rewatch rewatch all of it with commentary. But uh, the commentary on the DVD has Mick Garris and Stephen King and Stephen Weber and a few uh, other people that were involved. Um, but in the commentary on disc three, um, Garris is talking about how, you know, like the, the first episode is introducing the characters and getting connected to them. And then the second episode is like where you start getting a bunch of the uh, revelations and you start seeing a little bit more of what's happening behind the scenes. And then uh, episode three is where just all of it comes to a head. And, you know, the basic three act structure, but three movies worth of acts. And like you need (laughs) that connection to make that to, to make the rest of it work. And I want to jump jump ahead just a little bit to mention this uh, to kind of guide the rest of the stuff that we talk about with this movie. I was almost in tears at the end of this movie, at the at the end of the series, when uh, mm-hmm. it was it was sad enough when Danny was like reconnecting with uh, with with Jack and you know like oh this isn't you you know you can you can still save us by destroying yourself and destroying all like it was sad and there was the connection and. When uh, when Weber realizes, you know, kind of uh, hearkening back to that one way or another, you know, this will be over that then that comes to fruition at the end. But the fact that he is he had been uh, Jack had been so selfish throughout the entire not so selfish. The fact that his selfishness had been increasing over the course of, you know, four months, three months. Is that how long ago they were there? October to January, three months. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. The, the fact that his selfishness had been increasing, the fact that he had been diving so deep into that research and neglecting his family to then at the end be so self-sacrificing and realizing because I love them so much, this is the only way to save them. That was, that was sad. But then when he showed back up at his graduation, I was almost in tears. Yeah. I was just like, oh, oh you're so manipulated yes i am yeah it's because pretty, i have a heart he's like hey he's like hey doc good job i love you and it's just like uh yeah you, you yes. are weak. <laughs> i uh i cry i cry at everything um so dan i'm i'm super duper weak um and uh yeah from from the moment that Cortland mead is like crying uh, through through the end, yeah, I had tears in my eyes. I'm a I'm a fucking I'm a Mark, big time. <laughs> I mean, the kid my, literally got my daddy. He's like goodbye, daddy. I love you, and like, it's so heartbreaking because it's like you see, and Stephen Weber plays that ending so beautifully, where he's like fighting through these forces that have that are controlling him, and he's trying to fight back against like. <laughs> what he what you know they're trying that the fact that they're trying to kill his family yep. and he he just he does it so beautifully like it's so great um and yeah it's genuinely heartbreaking because yeah. he realizes that at this point the only way to fight back is to just you know let the boiler run over and blow the place up i don't know if that's really how boilers work but uh oh it is they will blow is it really <laughs> 
Yeah. What a what a fascinating uh, thing to just know that there's like a ticking time bomb at the bottom of every like large <laughs> building. If somebody yeah. doesn't, jump in. that's why radi- radiators will often hiss because they're literally letting off pressure. <laughs> I so thought it was just because they were mad at you. That's how I operate too. Actually, <laughs> I have to let off that steam <laughs> every so while, or I am gonna fucking lose it. So yeah, I've got Stephen Weber come by and, and play with your handles for a while, and then you're okay. I get it. <laughs> gladly, <laughs> gladly, doors open, Steve. Anytime, Steve. <laughs> no, I mean. Man. Get the emotional manipulation of the end. It is a very, very sweet ending, but part of me feels like that is King George Lucasing it a little bit. Where it's like, shit, I kind of I want to give Jack a happy ending now that I'm an older man. Um, so I'm gonna add this scene in. Y'all look cool with it, right? I don't think King. King is a sentimental bitch. Like, let's I be don't, honest. I don't feel like very much him enough. Which I love. It's for the reasons I, I love, love it, him yeah. so is he is very sentimental, he is very nostalgic. But I think it took away from the powered, the powerful ending. Here's, to here's have thing, that though. kind. I don't reconciliate. I don't think that was Jack's happy ending. I feel like that was for Danny. It was Danny. Yeah. Which I don't want Danny to have a happy ending yet, especially in lieu <laughs> of what he goes through with Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Well, I've not it's seen a temporary reprieve. That, that kid with with that happy ending, I don't know if that kid becomes Dan Torrance in Doctor Sleep. Well. Oh, that's the interesting. Kid, the kid, the kid from the original ending of The Shining, whose head just blew up in a fucking hotel. That kid becomes Dan Torrance, no problem. But the kid who gets to you know see the Force Ghost, Jack Torrance, I'm not sure if he. Force Ghost. You know. well, here's, here's the thing about that. I've never seen Doctor Sleep. So sure nothing he has as much trouble reconciling everything. So I have nothing to compare that's why to. I- but. <laughs> I, I said I've not seen Doctor Sleep yet, so I don't have that context, bro. But I'm going. Mm-hmm. I have. Say, I have the Blu-ray. I'm going to watch it. We're going to do an episode does it on have it. The, does it. Have the extended cut. It has the director's the three cut. Three hours. Yes. Thank good. goodness. I haven't so seen the director's good. cut. Here's, I've only seen that at the end. Here's oh, why I think that it is so both good. a happy ending, but also maybe not. Yeah, you get the resolution, but to me. It wasn't even necessarily like, oh yes, this is the like the happy force ghost of Jack coming back to tell Danny everything's okay. That could have been the start of Danny going down a path of, you know, seeing what he wants to see, like you know, r- rather than it actually being Jack there to tell him, all right, you're good. That could have been Danny being like, I want this bad enough, so I'm going to conjure it up regardless of whether or not that's actually him. And and I think that that can still work with him not having things fully resolved because, you know, e- even um, e- even with Jack throughout the course of the miniseries where, you know, like he hated his father, but he still was trying to be like him a little bit. Everyone has a distorted view of what we thought our parents were when we were kids. Mm-hmm. There's that mm-hmm. idealized view. And so... You know, for for uh, Danny to have this idealized view of, no, my dad was always wonderful and perfect and amazing, and I still love him despite all of the abusive things that he did, then as now he's turning it into an adult, that could be more of a, a representation of he is not yet grown up and still has that childlike idealization of, but this is what daddy was. It could be that. Sounds a lot like Dolores Claiborne. Which I'm not ready yet, so mm. sure. 
Why not? Which I watched today. How is it? Oh, it's so fucking good. I watched it the other day, and it's so good. Oh my god, I love Dolores Claiborne. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the the emotional connection of this film. Ah, uh, it. Yeah, I, I I was never bored throughout. I got connected to these characters and was fully invested, and I wanted to immediately rewatch all of it with commentary because I loved it so much. None of it was scary. A few things at the end that we'll get to in a, in, in a minute, but like none of the movie was bringing me in through horror as opposed to Kubrick, where the entire movie is like, this is a dread-inducing movie. I don't give a fuck about any of the characters, aside from the fact that they are just people, that you don't want people to die. But like, the, it wasn't scary because of connection. It was scary just because of, here's blood in an elevator. But yeah, in, in Garris' miniseries, it's like, I'm so invested that when things start mm. happening, it's just like, no... Oh, no, I know what's going to happen because obviously I know the shine. Well, Come on. No, it's it's sad. It does a great job, too, of like the family dynamics in this are so good in terms of how they kind of ebb and flow and how you never it never really pits you against any of the characters, which I think would be kind of easy to do where like it would be easy to make Jack the villain. Um, the the sequence that I was referring to earlier where they where Jack and Wendy have like that long kind of conversation where she's trying to like get him to come to bed with her and he's too busy with his research or whatever. And they go into this argument. It's, it's a fucking incredible sequence of like two actors just at the top of their game. And that, that moment feels so authentic because it feels to me like how a real argument is where it's like, it starts off where you guys are like, having just a minor disagreement and then it gets super heated and you're like yelling and crying. And then the next thing you know, you're laughing about something and then you end up like, you know, mostly reconciled, even if you don't necessarily come to like a compromise or whatever, like it it just feels so authentic. And just the way that that just the ebb and flow of that. I mean, I think it's so brilliantly done and it's the kind of thing that, you know, you probably wouldn't get out of a feature adaptation because you, like you said, Nathan, you don't really have the time to spend it on like a 10 minute sequence of two characters talking. Right. Well, and it is, it's, the, it's the most stage like thing in the, yeah. you know, and, and it's just like, it's this beautiful little acting clinic between two very good actors, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think it does like, it does come off incredibly true. Um, and really, I think and you under both sides of the understand both sides of the argument too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh yeah, I don't think enough good things could be said about either of them. I mean, it really together, like they they create a really really compelling versions of both characters. Man, speaking of seeing both sides of the argument and like how realistic their portrayals are, and just again, just such a great job that these uh two actors did in in, in this film. Um, the the fa- not only when Stephen Weber um, Jack would get angry, but whenever anything would happen, especially anything would happen to Danny and um and Wendy immediately went to Jack. What did you do? So like every single time yeah. that it looks like they because because throughout especially the opening it does look like they are still happy and in love and and it does look like they're really trying to keep things together rather than it being, well, this is a dead, broken marriage, we're just together because we have to be. Like, you 
get the love and connection between them when they're walking through when they first get there uh, and the the one dude in the cowboy hat is showing them around like Jack and Wendy are holding hands and it honestly feels mm-hmm. sweet like it was a very subtle yeah. thing but it, it felt like, like a they're excited you can sense that they're excited about this new chapter that they're about to embark on exactly and so every single time that they reconnect that they reconcile that you see some of that joy that you see some of that optimism and hope not long after when something happens and Wendy immediately goes back to what did you do Jack like it 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 gives such a and it feels I, it, it doesn't feel like she's ever demonized like I don't ever feel like that's the wrong reaction you know like it is understandable that she would feel that way right because but like, that's the thing is it feels so genuine because it feels like I love you and also I've not forgotten all the times you fucked up and and the way right. that that is played, like the, the fact that they do kind of turn on a dime, never felt stagey to me. It never felt melodramatic. It never felt like, oh come on, people aren't really like that. It's like no, that, yep, that feels very true. Of I love you and I care very deeply about you and you, you know, I I want this to work. And also, what the fuck did you do this time? Like it it felt so <laughs> yeah. realistic. And one of my favorite scenes. Again, so much of it comes down to Weber's performance when uh, it, it was after Danny had been um, kind of beaten up by the tub lady. And oh, uh, this, I knew you were going to say this because this is what I was just thinking <laughs> yep. of. And he's he's in Wendy's arms and, uh, and Jack's like, you know, what's going on? And they see the, the lipstick on his cheek and then uh, then old, you know, watery woman, dead zombie lady shows up. And uh, Danny jumps up. It's like, it was her. It was her. It was her. We as audience know that it was the the tub lady. But then uh, when when Jack's saying to Wendy, like, how could you? And and her response, like, what? No, I would never. Jack's response to that of like, no, of course. I know you would never. But it doesn't feel good to be accused, does it? Like, it, it was <laughs> such a biting, like, oh, fuck you. But it felt so like, ooh, God. Oh, that felt like such a married response right there of right yeah rather than talking about it like kind of jabbing at each other a little it's and and again like it shows the stress that they're under and i i love that scene it was played so incredibly well yeah that's a, I, 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 I don't that. i don't I have a transition for that like, yeah no i'm i'm with you i think that's that's uh that's done really well um that was pretty. I was just going to say the exact same thing you were going to say, so <laughs> I will stop talking now. Um, okay, I do fine. want to. So we've talked a bit about the performances of Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay, who again I love her take on Wendy as opposed to Shelley Duvall's. Not a knock against Shelley Duvall at all, because she's <laughs> God bless her for what because her. she's been through enough, Eric. <laughs> right, she's <laughs> been through enough. Don't pile it on top of her, Eric. Jeez. I know she. I, it's so funny too because when I watched The Shining for the first time, I was like, "This is one of the worst performances I think I've ever." Like, I hated how hysterical she was, oh and then God. like I slowly over the years realized, like, no, this is not a bad performance. This is like legitimate fucking terror. Mm-hmm. That poor poor woman. Um, but I do like, like I feel like the Wendy in this version has a lot more agency. Like she's really really trying to do what's best for her and her child. Like she's trying to get out of the overlook. And that's, you know, that we talked about that argument that she and Jack had earlier. That's what that whole argument is predicated on is like, she's like, we need to get out of here because this is not healthy for us. Um, 
but I think that she is so so incredible, and she's like, she has a lot more agency. Um, <clears throat> but I also like I I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Cortland Mead because I I feel like this is the part where we're uh, most at odds with one another because I genuinely think that he is very very good in this movie. Like, there's a moment kind of early on where he is, you know, the whole idea is that he has the moment with Dick Halloran at the beginning where. Dick is talking to him about The Shining and how, you know, anytime he sees something in the hotel to just close his eyes and count to 10, it'll go away. But there's a moment early on where he's like just staring out of a window and you're hearing like kind of whispery voices in the background and you just think it's like creepy stuff. And then you realize that he's just constantly hearing voices in his head. And I think he's looking out. He just starts screaming, shut up over and over again. And in that moment, like you feel so fucking like you sense the weight of this place on this child's shoulders. And yeah. it is so sad in that moment. And again, like I, I think that Cortland Mead does a pretty terrific job of selling that. And like when he gets stung by the bee, the, the wasps, like I've seen a small child very recently stung by a bunch of wasps and his reaction is exactly the same reaction that you would expect for a child. Like, I don't know. It's just, I think that he does such a good job of it, and it is such a mature performance. Like, he seriously seems like a child who has had to deal with this, like, horrible, you know, quote-unquote gift, and that it's just constantly weighing him down, and he's he has had to mature much faster than he would actually want to, and he doesn't ever really get to be a child. He also, um, del- he also delivers uh, the most earnest perfect line in the whole film which is draw good fruit which is just my favorite line just complete earnestness as he's leaving the kitchen draw good fruit and she repeats it and it's just it's such a small thing but i love the line draw good fruit that's That's such a thing that a little kid would say so here's here's my view on Cortland mead's performance as (laughs) as danny before I, Dan wrecks this child. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why I'm going next because I don't have that much defense, but I feel like it maybe is a little bit more balanced. I think that I, again, I think that he did very well. I don't feel like his performance broke any scene for me. There was the, the only performance that took me out of it again was Tony because it's an unnecessary performance, but nothing with yeah. Danny Nothing with Cortland Mead's performance took me out of it and made me feel like, oh man, I'm so emotionally invested in, in Stephen Weber's portrayal of Jack and uh, Rebecca DeMornay's portrayal of uh, of Wendy, and I'm so invested. And and Dick Halloran is just fucking awesome. Like I, I'm so invested. Ah, and then here's that little shit again. Like the, I never had that sense. There was never anything about his performance that took me out of it. Is he the best actor ever? No, I I think that it was fine. I wouldn't. No, but he's a six-year-old child. Sure. They calm down. <laughs> there are. I mean, he has these great moments too. Like whenever the, some of the my favorite moments in the series because of just how emotional they are is anytime Jack gets upset, he kind of like his reaction to Jack getting upset is almost always like, "You're not going to hurt me again, are you, Daddy?" And like it, it feels like he is legitimately scared in that moment, and and it it informs Stephen Weber's performance in those moments where he's so good because it's like you, much like he, are immediately just melting at this child who is just genuinely afraid of 
what his father is capable of. So here's the um, thing with that. While also I, recognizing that his father does love him. Here, here's the thing with that. I don't, I don't disagree. It's also true that just a minute ago when you said he gives a very mature performance. Again, his performance did not take me out of any scene. However, his performance did feel very mature. Like some of it, a lot of it, felt like it was lacking some of that childness. It, it felt, yeah, like he was a, a more mature actor who, you know, knew his lines, knew how to deliver them, knew how to, you know, like give some of the emotion that the actor is supposed to give. Uh, and and I will also attribute a lot of this to Mick Garris because I think that, um, you know, he was doing a great job of actually guiding these characters from beginning, middle, and end. But it, it lacked some of that, you know, kidness about it. Draw good fruit. Draw good fruit is great. But my favorite line delivery of his, or just favorite scene of his, um, is when Wendy gets in the elevator and she's throwing out the uh, the confetti and the mask, and he puts the mask on and and they're like, "What yeah. are you doing?" And he's like, "I'm I'm being someone else." So that like you yeah. can stop yelling uh, at me. So that like that scene had the most so emotional weight good. of of a kid who yeah growing up in this and loving his parents and you know wanting them to reconcile, but was just fucking done. He's like, I, I'm so tired, guys. Like like it the the way that he delivered that line again. It was still maybe more mature, maybe like lacking some of that raw emotion. But to me, that was the best performance of his throughout the entire film again because of how emotional uh, that scene was so again I, th- I think that he did good i don't dislike any of his performance but because of some of that maturity i felt like maybe it was lacking some of the th- that more raw emotion um wolf what about you what what's your thought on uh on Whatever his name is on uh, Portland, Portland, Portland Mead. Mead. Um, uh huh, and the Little Rascals movie. Yeah, th- so uh, I think uh, a more cynical previous version of myself would probably uh, no, not probably. I definitely did not care for his performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bob's right. He was this kid was everywhere back then, um, and I think that then when I first watched it, that definitely tainted my view of him. I think as an adult. Um, I think it's a pretty, pretty good performance. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I understand some of the criticism, but like for a child actor whose job is never easy, um, to be given a pretty iconic character to work with and deliver what he did, um, I think there's an earnestness to it. Again, draw good fruit. Um, and <laughs> just, uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think he's like super lovable and precocious. Um, but I like, it's a kid who's had a really tough go of it. And I believe mm-hmm. that a hundred percent. Like I never, I never don't believe the struggle that he's been through. And that to go back to that thing of, Every time Jack threatens him, he is bracing for violence, and you see that it's that's really hard. Like, I mean, that is a really like awful thing that he does pretty well. Um, so yeah, I really 
I really actually like the performance quite a bit. Um, batter up, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As someone who works in a school system now and who spent the better part of a decade working with traumatized kids, um, I probably shouldn't say this, but watching <laughs> Portland for me is like staring into the uncanny valley for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> Something Holy about shit. this. <laughs> something about this kid just hits something primal in me that says this isn't right and I'm glad you mentioned um, the little rascals because for so much of this I feel like he is channeling Shirley Temple <laughs> like just that golly gee whiz shucks kind of thing and it comes across as so phony for me so often that it, at the at times I just want to shake him and be like, be a real fucking kid, please. Be a real fucking kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's the same thing I had with Haley Joel Osment when I first saw Haley Joel Osment, so it's not limited to just Cortland Mead. Um, I don't know. There is just something about child actors trying to act beyond their years, which... It's yeah, a tough it's thing that to pull little, off. I mean, it's that little rage button with me. I mean, like I'm a kid who defend. I'm a guy who will defend the kid from the Babadook all day long. Oh, but I something. Love that performance. What? Actually, you know, but let's, something. Yeah, Cortman Mead. Something about him. It, it just doesn't sit right with me, and I can't. It's irrational, and it's totally on me. It is not on him. It's on me. But goddamn, I can't do it. <laughs> It just can't. Dan, I'm so glad that you use Babadook as the example because that is a perfect example. Kind of. A, I also think that it's uh, kind of hilarious that all of us basically said the exact same thing about his performance, but the way that we connected to it is is the variation. The, the kid in the Babadook is playing very realistic, a whiny little shit of a kid that has been through hell. And that mm -hmm. very much informs the mom in the Babadook and the trauma that she's going through and how every time that her kid cries, she doesn't hear, oh, my poor sweet baby, why are you crying? She hears, you killed my husband. And so, like, every interaction between them, it's only intensifying and God, I love the Babadook. And we need to do another reevaluation of that because it's been years since we've covered it on the podcast before either of you were here and I want to dive into it with both of you. Uh, love the Babadook so much, but like th that kid's performance, I know so many people that hate, hate the Babadook because of that kid and how whiny he is. And like, they're just like, right, I, yeah. I just can't watch the movie because I hate that kid so much. And to me, it's like, then the kid did his job. Like mm -hmm. you are feeling what his mother felt. Imagine being not only his his parent, but his only parent. Like, imagine living with that. That is why she is the way that she is. And, like, his performance has that emotional rawness that I feel like Cortland Mead's performance was, was lacking. Again, he did a great job acting. I felt like it was missing that, that piece. Uh, but you know who yes. I do? I feel like the mom in the Babadook whenever Cortland Mead speaks. <laughs> so, That's just my reaction. You, you know who? It's not a good one. Uh, 
You but know, it's what it is. You know who I do not think. Or, so, does, so you d- doubly em- empathize with Jack Torrance at this point. It's like you're you're like, of course you would lash out at this child. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, I have a job. It, <laughs> yeah. You know who did not do a bad job and was not lacking any sort of emotion. Mr. Van Peebles. Melvin, Melvin Van yeah. Peebles as Dick fucking Halloran. Yeah. <sighs> He's pretty great. He is so great. He's so good. <sighs> so good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's just, he, I mean, he gives Scatman a run for his money because he, he does. Just, yeah. And he's is, really yeah. just, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and I love that, you know, keeping the, the book decision not to murder him as soon as he arrives <laughs> at the hotel is a good one. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I really, really love him in this, and honestly, could have used a little bit more. Uh, I like, I, I, I mean, I don't, I might be wrong in this because it's been a little bit since I've seen the Kubrick, but I feel like they, they sprinkled him in a little bit more. Um, and this seems like he's in the first episode, and then in the last one, it would have been, you know, I think we could have used him sprinkled in maybe just a little in the second one, but yeah, what a what a great performance. <clears throat> I think that speaking uh, of earnest line deliveries. Yeah. Um he uh Dick has probably my favorite earnest line delivery, which is whenever he finally gets back to the overlook after like enduring so many like plane delays and all this shit, he walks up and he goes, Hello, you old bitch. You're just as ugly now as you were when I left. It's just so yeah. fucking funny. <laughs> so oh good. man. Why didn't I start tonight's episode with Hello You Old Bitch? That's yeah, That's I, I love that line. Oh, so great. So uh I will about Melvin Van Peebles, just say what. Even if his performance was, even if his performance was terrible, I'm not talking shit about that man. Even if he is dead, so, he's still. So, I mean, the dude sells it. Even like, even in the moment where, like, it would be so easy to fuck up the scene where Danny calls to him and he's in Florida and he's at the diner and he kind of like you know stumbles backward or whatever in his chair. Like, it would be so easy to fuck that up and make it seem like ridiculous. But he sells it wonderfully like it's like so it feels mm-hmm. so sincere yeah um so i think that so uh I, I think that both melvin van peoples and scatman crothers were probably in uh in their respective shinings for the same amount of time it's just again the difference of runtime it makes it seem like uh like melvin van peoples wasn't yeah. in it as much so one okay, of the other things yes. well, two hours without seeing him at that point so exactly you, yeah. you've watched an entire movie without him uh, one one of the other really quick things that I wanted to mention about the commentary on uh, disc three of The Shining, Stephen Weber makes a uh, a very pointed effort, or not necessarily a pointed effort, but he takes the time to to give praise to uh, Mofin Van Peebles and just how amazing he is, and he very specifically references Sweet Sweetback's badass song and Watermelon Man. Yes. And so like. Yeah, people who are just watching, you know, this uh, this ABC late '90s, right? Late '90s, '97 is that when it came out? Uh, uh, yeah. you know, King adaptation. <clears throat> if they watch the uh, watch it with commentary, they get to hear Stephen Weber talk about some of uh, Melvin Van, Van Peebles' other storied career, and I just I appreciate that. I appreciate that uh, that he took to t- took the time to do some of that. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Uh, I I have one other thing that I want us to talk about, but we are not the guest on this episode. Wolf, 
What are some of the things that you <laughs> want to make sure that we uh, address that we have not yet? The the last thing that I want to talk about is the horror aspect. Um, yeah. But is there anything aside from that that you also want to make sure that we cover? Hmm. Uh, aside from the horror, no. I mean, I do want to touch on that. Um, hmm. That's a really good question. Uh, no, I mean, we've, we've covered the performances, the atmosphere... Um, yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know. I hope, I hope anybody who listens like this, like who hasn't seen it or who hasn't seen it in a while or who has seen it and poo pooed on it, will go back and rewatch it. Um, but yeah, I think we've, oh, I do. There is one thing. Uh, this maybe has, uh, two of the best cameos across Steve, uh, King's. Uh. Uh, screen catalog. I was actually uh, going to include the cameo as part of the uh, uh, horror elements, but yes. Yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that one from you real quick. Um, <laughs> Sam Raimi as a gas station attendant yes. is pretty darn good. Mick Garris himself as both an alcoholic and someone who has a uh, a uh, uh, proclivity for tranquilizers was pretty yeah. funny. It's, um, he, he says he's like very casually just like yeah I have a fondness for tranquilizer yeah fondness for yeah it's so funny and then uh, and also his name is Hartwell which is really funny to me and then um, Stephen King himself uh, as the band leader whose name is Gage Creed which is just mm-hmm. good, so good, interesting good. to me that uh, he's Gage Creed is like that opens up a whole can of worms in terms yeah, of yeah it really does um and he just looks like he's having the best time. Apparently, Frank Darabont's in there somewhere too, but I don't, I, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I couldn't either. Um, but yeah, have you? And oh, Stephen King looks like he's having the time of his life as that band leader. Yeah, when he, he really does around, that great pencil mustache. Yep. Mm-hmm. When he turned around and faced the camera, I was giddy. Like I was of just course, like, you can't oh my not God. be. <laughs> so, have you guys seen that there was a there was a a deleted scene? Um, from this movie where like apparently the band like all the people in the in the ball were like melted and there's mm-hmm. this image of Stephen King's face melting oh I have series. to find that that's incredible I have it hold on I have oh, a link great. right here okay. I'm gonna share it in the chat because it is incredible uh, but yeah I guess they had to cut it out because it was probably too gory for network television yeah and I think that's probably gonna lead into our next uh, our, our final kind of topic but I do I also have Oh, that's awesome! That is yeah. Awesome there's the picture, his face melting in the. Um, in the chat. I do have some some pretty big feelings about the horror as well, Nathan. So yeah, yeah. So that's all. Uh, that's all I've got. Yeah, the yeah the, the king cameo is amazing. Um, at one point, guys, I want us to do maybe in the uh, the punch out episode. I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about the best king cameos because I also watched <laughs> Sleepwalkers today. Oh, yes. And the King Cameo <laughs> that shows up in Sleepwalkers is also just amazing. And I love it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Um, all right. Uh, oh, oh, one last thing. We, I think that maybe, I know that I at least mentioned this, but I want to uh, highlight it just a little bit more before we move into, uh, move into the horror. Mick Garris directing uh, the Shining miniseries. I feel like the, he did an amazing job. The early parts of it, I very much felt like I was watching a miniseries, but it did not take me long at all until I completely forgot. Like it, 
obviously didn't have quite the same production value as a, as a theatrical release, but man, it was it was getting close. I feel like it was if if they had given him you know like current budgets rather than ninety seven ABC here go make a miniseries budgets. Um, I mean, they used to give him pretty good money for these King adaptations, especially. They were so huge that ABC would put a pretty good chunk of change into them. Yeah, the, and, and yeah, I think one, kind of the. The the th- sorry Nathan, but I think like the three the three adaptation run that probably had really nice money behind it was this one, Storm of the Century, and Rose Red. Like I think those three just had like buku bucks behind them. Yeah, but mm. you know there was still like the well, it's only going to be on TVs in the nineties. Like they weren't thinking about how it's going to look in twenty thirty years and like how the resolution is going to change. Um, so like I'm sure that at the time it was probably like this looks amazing. Again, we kind of touched on that uh, earlier, but but yeah, it did not take long at not all. The, not the hedge animals. No one yes, ever thought. Yeah, yes, uh, right. From the hedge animals. <laughs> that is the that is one of the arguments in, against uh, maybe uh, not making a perfectly faithful adaptation of a book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes things need to be cut out for a reason. Aside from the two like, theories, with the stand, the stuff in the stand looked great. Other than the hand of God, it's just when they try to go really CGI in those, because the technology just wasn't there yet. But. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, but, but like Garris was doing not just camera movements to give you like you know you know camera following the characters and uh, something other than just a static two shot, but very early on when uh, when Weber is talking to Elliot Gould and and he's kind of giving him the mm-hmm. uh, the introduction to the hotel, the framing. Eric, you earlier talked about how boring the overlook is. Yep. But in the introduction, like it is still a very imposing presence. The way that Garris framed that shot of the overlook is looming over top of them. Very large as they are. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's such a great job. And, and and again, the difference of having someone like Mick Garris behind the screen uh, to, to make sure that, that, that it gets not only a physical (laughs) adaptation, but a, a cinematic presentation is uh, is vital. All right, so the horror. I already mentioned, I don't think that the miniseries is scary. But yeah. there are two scenes that I specifically want to mention that I, I loved so much. <laughs> I love so much because you remember in the intro episode where I talked about I feel like the times that uh, that when King is really shining, it's and, and not like yeah. you know, shining in in the uh, uh-huh. this sense, but really uh, at his top is when there is the emotion, the horror, and the comedy, and the two biggest jumpy of the jump scares to me are also two of the funniest scenes in this movie and i love it love it so much the first Uh one when uh when danny was in in room 217 and and he walks out and the bathtub woman is you know still in the room and he's like oh thank god i'm safe the way the camera was placed how far away he was from the door i was like just pictures in a book it was like well (laughs) obviously she's about to grab him and just the the timing was so perfect, and the way that like yeah, the arms reached out and yanked him back in, it was almost cartoonish in the way that it was handled. Yeah, not saying that it was not handled seriously, but it's it's bringing in the humor to the horror elements because yeah, 
that was like one of the first jump scares that it was like an honest to God, like jump scare, but it was still so funny. And then the other one is the dude in the wolf mask that pops up in front of him. Yeah. Rover. (laughs) And not only was it scary, it was hilarious. And also, okay, this is the last time I'm going to mention the commentary. Uh, Steven Weber, as he was doing his uh, commentary, is saying whatever it got to that scene and he like he is startled so he is mid-sentence and goes ah and so yeah <laughs> the movie that he was in startled him. i'll say the <laughs> the that jump scare the one with rover did get me too because like the the series for the most part doesn't really have many jump scares like yep. that's one of only i think those may be the only two jump scares in the entire thing and so like Whenever I think it's in the isn't it like Wendy trying to get to Danny, and that's when yeah, once when he's in the outside in the topiary, right? It's either that or when Jack is chasing Danny and she's trying to get to him. I can't remember Mm -hmm. because it's it's one of those two. But yeah, she's she's trying to get to Danny and she's running, and so like it's not one of those things where it's like she's just kind of quietly walking and it's building up to a jump scare. It's very unexpected. Um, and so it, it's really effective that way because again, this is like pretty late in the miniseries when it happens, and and there haven't been that many jump scares to it, so you just don't expect it at all. Um, it's very good. Yeah, I like that one. Um, well, that that scene where he jumps out in front of Danny in the book is actually really profane. What he says to him, it's something that's actually stuck with me from the first time that I read the book. I'm not going to repeat it here. Because uh, it's awful, um, but go, you know, go look it up. Um, but it's it's interesting things like that that I'm. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, it's like uh, it's interesting things like that that I'm. I think are weird that they've added, knowing that they can't take them to their logical progression. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the horror. It's it's funny that you say. I think um, the sense of dread works really well like when the chairs fall off the tables like anytime like there's mm-hmm. like something opens or closes on its own like i always think that that stuff is pretty effective i think it loses some of its teeth when all of the the previous tenants of the overlook are all in fucking corpse makeup like the that's yeah. the one thing that the See, that the, the movie makeup. did re- what's that i said i love the corpse makeup Okay, but like I feel like the one thing that the movie had that I really liked is that like uh, Lloyd the bartender and um, you know some of the other spirits when they when they first present themselves are not you know they just look like people and that that's a little scarier um, mm-hmm. and like I just think it does it it's kind of like the haunted mansion and not the overlook yeah hotel. the one of Derwin yeah. in particular is really silly um i like the one of jack like the when danny has like i guess it's a dream sequence or something he sees jack coming out and he's all it's like one of the probably oh, maybe even the most iconic shot up from this miniseries is of jack it looks like that. he looks like a deadite yeah he looks like yeah, a deadite yeah. that's exactly what i was gonna say yeah because that's it's yeah. exactly what it looks like it's so and good. like the the tub lady looks cool but the tub like lady looks great i think but just there just their kind of like standard pallor, you know, like spirit Halloween chalky, uh, you know, dark yeah. circles around the eyes. I'm like, okay, this is silly shit. Um, and I think would have been much more effective if they had not done that. So I think that a lot of the yeah. bite 
or potential of the horror is taken away, you know, when, when all of the guests are in. I also don't know that I love when we cut, when Jack is like in the ballroom and then we cut back to the empty ballroom in the middle of the day and he's just kind of stumbling around. Like, yeah, we're being shown that, yes, it's not really there. But I think like it takes the that atmosphere of him being... You know, in yeah. that scene, it completely almost makes him away. a bit of a joke or something. You know, yeah, like, kind of makes him look like an idiot. It weirdly undercuts a lot of it. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I agree. It's not super scary. I do think like the dread moments are interesting, but then when it starts to make bigger swings, like bigger horror swings, it, I think it, it doesn't do so great. Oh, see, I disagree. Yeah, yeah I, I'm Dan, with you. Dan, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah. I was going to say, I, I agree with that, too, because for me, one of the things that was the scariest part of the Kubrick version was when Danny's running and trying to get away from everybody, and you see the, the dude in the dog costume. Mm-hmm. To yeah. me, that was freakier than anything else in that movie because it yep. broke my brain for a minute. It's like, what? Yeah, what are you doing? Why yeah, are you, I, what's I happening? didn't like, understand what happened right there. And that to me was scarier than anything else because it was something yeah, that it's, really was like, whoa, okay, this is not right. Whereas guys running around in the spirit of Halloween costumes, I've seen that shit before. That yeah. stuff doesn't that stuff doesn't bother me. But yeah, when I'm like, you know, eleven years old and I've never heard what a furry is, this dude's <laughs> freaking me out. <laughs> that shit I didn't know about and it was like, is that like, is he cosplaying Rolf from the Muppets? What, what is happening here? <laughs> and then he later goes, um, dude, you know, and he's got his head between the guy's legs and you're like, Hey, what's yeah, going on there? The guy looks like a Senator, you know, it's like, what, what's going on? So I would, that freaks me out more than the boogeyman stuff, the mm. stuff that my brain just can't wrap itself around right away. I think it's my and biggest complaint. We had more of that. Yeah, the, my biggest complaint with this miniseries, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying about Tony, is I think that it almost feels like a bit of an overcorrection from the Kubrick version where they make everything overly literal Yeah, from the page. Like Again, like the topiary in particular is the kind of thing where it's like, I don't really think that works very well. That's not particularly scary just to see some, like, turn around and see some bushes in a different spot, and they kind of make mm-hmm. animal noises. <laughs> Although I love that, <laughs> quick aside, I love that Jack is wearing snowshoes in that moment, because when he tries to run away, he keeps falling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like like you said, Dan, there's something about like what Kubrick does so well is through his addition by subtraction. Like, the overlook is scarier when you don't understand why these things are happening, or you don't understand... Mm-hmm who these people are, why they're acting this way. And in this movie, it takes great pains to explain everything to you. Um, Mm -hmm. And to make all of the ghosts very much like, yeah, these are just people who have been in the hotel before and they, here they are at a ball. That's why they're in all these costumes and, you know, they're having a great time and doing all, you know, it's, it, it's, it is definitely a very, very literal interpretation. And I think that takes away from, the kind of atmosphere and scares of it for me. See, I I would disagree. Not that it takes away the scares for you, but even though the movie, uh, e- even though the miniseries wasn't like scary, it's not like watching it. I was like, oh, I can't go to sleep tonight. 
there's a lot about it that I really appreciated and some some things about it that I really loved. So, um, you know, Wolf, when you're talking about like the like the doors closing on their own or like some of the stuff moving on their own, you know, some of that stuff is definitely spooky. Like as a as we're sitting here podcasting right in front of me, not, you know, like right behind the uh, computer, but like I'm staring at at the door to the room and, um, you know, like there are plenty of times where I look up and it's like, wait, is the door starting to open a little bit? And, you know, like stuff <laughs> like that where it can be just a little spooky because, you know, houses shift a little bit and they make creepy noises and all this other stuff. So, you know, like some of that stuff, it it's spooky. But none of it was really like scary. I, I, I think that it works. And yeah. even though earlier I was like, I could almost watch this with my four year old, I'm not gonna because I'm, mm. aside from episode three, like even the first couple of episodes, like things closing on their own, I don't want him dealing with some of that stuff yet. So nothing about it is, you know, like terrifying to look at. Nothing about it is like excessively, you know, horrific. There's, there's some fun little spooky stuff giving you that sense of things are a little bit off. Uh, and and Eric, to it's, your point of what? Go, go ahead. Oh, just really quick, I want to mention. Like, I think one of the things that King is so good at in terms of scares, uh, at least again on the page, is he's so good at writing from a child's perspective and like identifying things that would be scary to a child. Like the the fire hose, for example, I think is a, is a is like a perfect thing where it's like if you were a kid and you saw that huge fire hose, it's like of course you would imagine that as a snake, but when you see it as an adult, especially with some like kind of dodgy CGI effects is like, this is just silly, <laughs> you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite communicate the actual fear that you would feel as a child. It doesn't give you that childlike sense of fear, but it is because of how literal it is. And, and know? that's fair. And I think that a lot of that also <laughs> ties back into the, how difficult it is to adapt King because of just the, the, how expressive and descriptive he is reading drastically different from watching you know, I, I use this example in our intro episode of a picture is worth a thousand words, but when King is writing like, you know, eight million words, it's going to take a whole <laughs> lot more pictures to actually uh, convey what, what's being presented to you on the page. So I don't feel like it was an overcorrection to explain everything from uh, from Kubrick's movie to, to Garris's miniseries. I feel like it was more of a... I, I am glad that the that the additional details are there. I am glad that it takes more time to put you into that setting and and give you more of that environment and give you not even necessarily more of the explanation, but give you more of a sense of why this would be so tempting to Jack. So like in mm. uh, in the Kubrick movie, you know, I, I think that they give the explanation of like, oh, this is on an Indio burial ground and it's just haunted and like, oh, creepy dead people. But nothing about the Kubrick movie ever makes me feel like Jack is being tempted by the hotel. It was always just like we said at the beginning, he started out crazy. They went the to hotel this haunted makes, place and he exacerbates just, it. Right. It's, you know, it, it just intensifies everything. And so. It intensifies uh, Danny's shining, and it intensifies uh, Jack's craziness. But like nothing about uh, nothing about it ever really made me understand like you know why he wanted to be there, or even uh, at the end where the it's the um, the it wasn't New Year's. What, what was it like a Valentine's ball, Groundhog Day, whatever it was. The uh, the I thought it was New Year's. Well, it's mm, no, it's, it's, it's not. It's one. not a New Year's party. 
it is, you think that it is, but it is very much not a New Year's party. Maybe it's like Labor Day. Who knows? Um, no, it's July 4th. July 4th. That's right. Yeah, it was a July 4th. Party. Oh, okay. Um, but, but yeah, like, you know, then when it cuts that picture and you have that like, what? He's always been here? What? And, you know, Dan, <laughs> to your point, maybe it gets into the this doesn't fit. And, like, that's why it's so terrifying. Because, like, what, what do you mean he was always here? What's going on? And, like, some of that stuff is terrifying because of the unknown. But none of it ever made sense. Again, I love Kubrick's movie, but it never made sense. Like, why was Jack being tempted by it? Why was he always there? What's going on? It was just always kind of, like, spooky for the sake of being spooky. And it works, and I love it. But the thing that I love about the miniseries is, you know, Eric, like you mentioned earlier, you see him doing this research. You see him, like, diving into the history of the hotel. And and it is fueling a little bit of that addiction. But the way that, uh, the way that I kind of interpreted the overlook in the miniseries is very much like a hotel California of, you know, like it's, it, it is the gates of hell where you can check it or you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. So like mm-hmm. that was the way that I was watching this of all of these people who are here are in hell and, and they just can't ever escape because now this is where they are trapped to spend the rest of their eternity and they they are enticed into thinking that it's going to be some fun, wonderful place, but then it's where all of these horrific things happen. And to me, that is why some of the makeup, I think, really works, because you have those three different levels. You have the, they look like a normal person. You have the deadite zombie looking makeup, which I actually like. And then you have the spirit Halloween here. Let's throw on some, you know, black and white um, eyeliner and kind of make your face look a little bit gaunt. I actually really like that makeup because it gives it just enough of this doesn't feel right. This doesn't look right. This feels off, not to the extent of Kubrick, but it's like, Mm. this isn't the way people are supposed to look. And to me, (laughs) (laughs) That gives a little bit more of an insight into where Jack's mind is because none of it looks wrong to him. Even when he looks in the mirror and, uh, and he sees that one woman, you know, much more in that sort of zombie-ish dead-eyed and he just looks back at her and he's just kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, like it's showing that he is a little bit more on that path and like he's starting to see the humanity strip away and he's seeing a little bit more of those demons underneath. But, yeah, the makeup's not great, but I like that they just look a little gaunt. I like that they just look a little painted. They look just you know, just just a little bit off because again, to me that's showing uh some of those some of that veneer being stripped away as he is mm. brought in further and further and further into um in, in, into the lure of the, of the overlook. So I like it. I don't think it's the greatest looking stuff, but I like I like the story that it is telling. I like the way that uh, that it's giving more depth to these characters. And even though I said nothing about this movie is scary in the sense that, you know, like watching it, nothing had me like, I can't go to sleep tonight. I had a lot of fun with some of the horror elements. The thing that uh, that we've been talking about this entire episode, because of that emotional connection, that is the horror for me is seeing Jack drawn away from his family 
because of his own addiction, because of his own self-medication, because of his own past trauma, mm. because of his own desire to to be great, because of you know, because of all of these things, because of wanting to leave his family and just go to a great big party. Like all of those elements about Jack, like that is where the horror is for me. So that's why it's scary. Yeah. Is again, like taking King and, and taking the way that he gives his character so much depth. His stories are terrifying, not because of the demons, but because of how does a person handle their own internal demons. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I don't know. It, it doesn't look the best, but I kind of dug it. I, I like it. It's my well, thought at least. That's nice. <laughs> You're like, I don't it's care. nice to know that it's effective in some way. Um, <laughs> I do think that like there are a couple of moments that are genuinely scary. Um, I think the the room two seventeen moment is actually pretty scary, mostly because of how creepily the lady sings back old McDonald had a farm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. It's pretty <laughs> scary. I think the best change that is made from the Kubrick version is a, is such a simple one, and it's one that's taken directly from the book, of course. But I love that Jack uses a croquet mallet instead of an axe. Yeah, I love that so much. I think that is so much scarier than having an axe because it's like it feels so much more brutal. Like you know, with an axe, it's going to hurt and you're going to die slowly, but it still feels like it's the kind of thing where it could be a much quicker. Well, death. Yeah. And with a mallet, you're just being brutalized. And axes are inherently <clears throat> dangerous. Croquet mallets yeah. are kids. You know, right. it's not you're not supposed to see that and see this is what I'm going to murder you with. Yeah. Yeah, you, exactly. you like look at a fireman's axe, and you're like, "That's sharp on all ends." Of course, that kills <laughs> yeah. a, a, a croquet mallet is just meant to send something through the wickets, you know. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that I think is so. Uh, it's very Stephen King. Like he is so good at finding the, you know, the horrible nature of everyday benign objects. You know, like finding oh, them horrifying about them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that scene too, like there is like the confrontation between Jack and Wendy in this version is really, really good. And it is so, it's such a, it's surprisingly physical, you know, like when he's like swinging the mallet at her and he's, he hits her in the leg and she's like crawling away. And, uh, the moment whenever she's running and the chair swings across the room and hits her and she does a flip over it, it's like, holy shit, this looks like this person is really injured. Like it, it, there's a surprising <laughs> brutality to the violence. Uh, and in like a not graphic way, it's just because of like how physical it is. Oh no. When she, and cuts it feels his more like, a, like actual blade? domestic violence, well, you know, when, like when she cuts his hand with a razor blade, that, Oh yeah. Oh, because like, rough. Ooh, man, I, Ugh. I, I cannot handle that stuff. I like, I can, I can feel it when it happens. I can hear the sound. It's just, ah, Ooh. That's so much more visceral to me yep. than any <laughs> anything else that's happened in 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 the Kubrick movie. Yep. Uh, yeah, if you get it. You the physical sensation when it happens. Um, so yeah, I do think overall it's uh, incredibly effective. Yeah, uh, I want to keep talking about this, but I don't know if there's anything else that I have to God, say. I know there's so much. Just like, there's so much. It's four and a half hours. It's yeah. 
Well, that's about how long we've gone for. So we're getting that's there. not yeah. true. We're we're pushing two, but for once, we're gonna have an episode not longer than the than the uh, thank God the recovering. I mean, unless you all want to turn this into a five hour episode, I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. No, no, oh, no. That's I'm that's okay. Up midnight. It's at no matter what. Yep. <laughs> all right. So this is the late all week before we wrap up then uh wolf once again is there anything else that we've not uh th- that we've not taken the time to talk about uh either maybe maybe not about this directly but just about the shining in general i still think that the the perfect adaptation has yet to happen um mm-hmm. i think it's i think it's going to happen uh and just <laughs> yearly i tweet at mike flanagan um, I, I tweet I tweet this graphic at him. I'm going to send it to the chat. Um, just hoping that he'll do a new season of the Haunting uh, series and do the Haunting <laughs> of the Overlook. Um, just because awesome. uh, I really I think that if anybody's going to do the perfect adaptation, it's probably going to mm-hmm. be him. Just because of his his uh, background with King and his background with you know Doctor Sleep. Um, mm-hmm. But until then, I think this is really the best. Uh, version of The Shining from its book to screen that we have. Mm. Um, But uh, yeah, I I do look forward to seeing whoever's going to really nail it next. Well, they're doing, isn't it on HBO? They're doing like an Overlook TV series. No, they canceled. That got canceled. uh, Yeah. I know that they were doing Before the shakeup. Glenn Mazzara. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I know Glenn Mazzara was working on like a movie that ended up being canceled because of Dr. Sleep. I actually just recently read that script and it's very good. Um, yeah, they talk about it on the King cast. There's an interview with him on the King cast yeah. and it sounds incredible. Like it, sounds it was so great. It, it was really, really good. I was, I was kind of shocked by how much I liked it. Um, and then, yeah, JJ Abrams was producing a um, prequel series about the overlook that has also been canceled. So that's too bad. I, I did not know that. I, I really do feel like if Flanagan did it, he would combine, you know, the, the, prequel and the story of the the torrances uh in a way that would be really cool um but yeah, yeah uh, i i still think it's out there i still think it's possible um but until then we have a, a woefully uh underappreciated tv miniseries so yeah it's quite good also Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I'm so, so glad that we're starting with this because I'm one of those people that always thought like, oh, why do I need to watch this dumb miniseries? It, like, how could it possibly be better than the movie? I, I, I might like it more than the movie. I at least like it mm-hmm. in very different ways. Uh, the, sure. if, if anything, this only deepened my appreciation for Kubrick's movie because there's so many things that I feel like it gives that much more context. So again, like the, the photo of you've always been here. I, I, again, I feel like it's more of a, once you're here, yeah, never leave. And so that picture was almost more of a, I don't know, like a future picture. It's like, like Olive you, Garden. When you're here, your family, exactly. When you're here, <laughs> you're deadites. So it was more of, you know, like once he was absorbed into the hotel, he was brought back into uh, you know, that f- uh, fancy costume ball that they were having. So it wasn't like, mm-hmm. oh, he was always here and he was a ghost. And he, it's like, no, it's just once you go into the supernatural realm. Yeah, sure. You're trapped in the painting, whatever. 
uh the yeah the the weird dog giving the dude a blowjob and off in the side room in kubrick's version <laughs> it's like oh it's because like the guy who owns the hotel was into some really kinky shit and you see him like treating rover like a dog getting down on all fours he's obviously going to take him to a back room and do some nasty nasty shit like it gives that context that to me makes kubrick's movie more of a cliff notes with intensified um uh, atmosphere and and horror and stripping mm. away some of the emotion but i i feel like it actually makes it a better movie i feel like the, it's more of the the companion piece you know watch what watch kubrick yeah. and then watch this one as the uh the compendium of all right or the con- the concordance of <laughs> yeah if you got seven let, hours let to kill it. you know yeah what better way to do it <laughs> exactly so i i love this the other thing that i love about this and wolf i know that we talked about this uh at least i think that i mentioned this to you when uh when you gave me your pick uh i love the fact that we're starting out with one of the miniseries because i have for whatever reason decided that it is my mission to get eric to watch all of the king miniseries uh over over the next two months (laughs) just cause yeah yeah i'm excited about some of them (laughs) Do what? Oh, a good mission. Good, yeah. 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 I'm excited about some of them, but I'm also noticing that, you know, I have like the Langoliers and the Tommy Knockers on there. And I'm just like, I mean, <laughs> Tommy Knockers has Jimmy Smith's, which is kind of exciting because I love Jimmy Smith's, but man. Do, do, do you need a copy of the Tommy Knockers? Because I have more than one. Sure. I'll take it. And then, you know, <laughs> trade it in. For I was, was going to say, are you going to burn it or try to uh, get rid of it? Because if no, so, I'll get something out. I'm going to get, get something out of it. Come on now. <laughs> you will get um, a quarter out of it. Yeah, uh, I, do, I do. I do sincerely love that. I'm so glad you picked this wolf because I, 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 you know, it's the kind of thing I always put off because I just assumed it was terrible because this film or this miniseries has such a bad reputation. Like it's, I've seen it listed as the worst mini of all the Stephen King miniseries that's, many times, and I think that's fucking insane. Tommy Knockers and Langoliers exist. Like that's that's Langoliers <laughs> wins that forever. Yeah, and I, I think it's just because of you know if if Stanley Kubrick's film didn't exist, I do feel like people would love this a lot more. Yeah, and that's the thing. I th- and I think a lot of people write it off without ever giving it a chance because of that. Right. Because there is such a reverence for, if even if not the entire movie, the iconography of right, Kubrick's yeah. movie. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of untouchable. But but I mean, this is a this is a a good adaptation. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's uh, and again, it, it gets it <clears throat> all the things that I was missing from the Kubrick version, particularly just like everything on the parenting side. Like there's, I knew from, there's a moment early on in this miniseries where after Jack breaks Danny's arm, you see Danny laying in bed with a cast on and Jack like comes in. He's like, Hey doc, you awake? And Danny's asleep. And it's like, man, I know I've had so many nights where like, you know, if the kids had a bad day or whatever, and I go into their room and, you know, just try to have one last little connection with them before they go to bed, but they're already asleep. And it just, it's, it, I don't know. It just it's just the kind of moment where it's like this feels so like this feels like a piece of me in this movie. That moment, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's really just stuff like that is what's missing out of the Kubrick version. It's what I I still struggle with with that movie, even though I <clears throat> I don't like one to one adaptations in general because I think that's kind of boring. But um, 
it still pains me every time I watch the Kubrick movie that that that, that aspect of it is missing. Yeah. So uh, neat. We did it. What, one of the things that we've, for whatever reason, I still don't entirely know why I've done this, but what I've taken to doing is looking at uh, some of the lowest rated reviews on Letterboxd. And uh, oh yeah, I haven't thought about. Oh man, uh, I haven't. I didn't do that with this. And I'm afraid, with, honestly. With as okay, I know that I've said this, but I want to emphasize it again. I really really love this miniseries i'm surprised at how much not just like yeah i thought it was good i loved it i i legitimately love this i might even end up rewatching it more than kubrick's yes it's longer but i I, it's that emotional connection i don't know i i really love it so uh there are a whole lot of half star reviews and, you know, they give a lot of very insightful oh. critiques, such as, this movie fucking sucks. Fucking shit, <laughs> this movie should burn in the deepest part of hell. Ah. King didn't like the Kubrick version, so he made the worst movie possible. This is the most boring movie ever. Why the fuck they remaked one of best horrors? <laughs> <laughs> the most liked review of The Shining on Letterboxd says, there is a terrifying scene towards the beginning of this movie where text appears reading screenplay by Stephen King. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good burn. There's, uh, there's some more good. very insightful critiques. Fuck you. No. That's, it. That's all the review says. Just no. <laughs> this ain't it. Fuck off. Oh, man. <laughs> There's some, like, just vitriol about this miniseries. How? Like, I, wow. And and again, the reason that we look at some of these lowest rated reviews is not to, you know, like, you know, shame anyone that has different tastes. That's totally fine. <laughs> different people like different things. Very, very understandable. I can understand it being tedious or boring, but I mean, like, come on. This movie's great. Uh, but yeah, right. here, sincerely, well, thank you so much for bringing this to us. I'm, I'm thrilled we got to, that I, that I watched this and got to talk about it. Oh, uh, it's so late. I don't want to bring it up, but man, watching this on archive.org has, is terrible quality, but it also has all the commercials from the, from when it originally aired in 1997. Oh, and it's boy. a fucking incredible time capsule. Gonna go look at that uh, now. There is a, there is a commercial. Three hours to the runtime. <laughs> it yep. does add. It adds. Yeah, it's six hours long, and that way. But uh, there was this incredible HBO commercial where uh, the Grim Reaper shows up to a dude's house, and the dude's like, "But I'm watching HBO." And the Grim Reaper comes in and literally sits down and starts watching Independence Day with this dude, and they're like eating popcorn and having a good time, and it is so fucking funny. Okay, that alone is uh, worth it. The qu- the quality is terrible. Like it is, it is. The quality is bad, but it's I unwatchable. Tried to just rem- imagine. I feel like it kind of adds to the time capsule quality because that's pretty much the quality of what it would have looked like no. watching it on my square twelve yeah. inch TV that I had in my bed. Yeah, so you needed to watch that on a D- like on a TV VCR combo somewhere, yep. right? Yeah. I mean, the thing has scan lines on it and stuff. Like, you can literally see at the end of each episode where they pause the tape and then started recording <laughs> again the next night. Like, you could see the the fuzziness and, like, the jump in the tape. Oh, it's so good. Like, it, it really... It. it was an incredibly evocative experience that truly took me back to, like, 
being a kid in the 90s. It was incredible. I, I tried to watch it, and I couldn't even get past the... Um, I, I couldn't even get past like the tonight on ABC where it was giving the preview of what you're going to be watching. So I don't even think that I got like into the, the Drew actual, Carey show in 3D. Well, no, like I don't, I don't, I don't, I, it was, it was the preview of like the, you know, like when they would used to do that where they're about to start the shining. And so they give the preview of the thing that you're oh, yeah, about to watch. Oh yeah. It's like the very sinister voiceover thing where it's like, yeah. now Stephen King's the shining. I, I couldn't even get past that. The quality was so bad. And I was like, I have the DVD. I cannot spend six hours watching <laughs> this. I just can't. I did end I up skipping the commercials, through a lot of the commercials but, later on because I'd seen most of them. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I couldn't do it one for six to, hours. All right, we uh, do not want this to turn into a six-hour episode. So, Wolf, uh, I forgot to do this at the very beginning. Uh, tell everyone who you are, what you do, um, the 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 pitch that you won at Chat Film Fest. You know, all of that self-promotion. Yeah. That yeah, uh, yeah. I'm Wolf McCready. I am a uh, writer director uh, at this year's Chattanooga Film Festival. I won the screenplay pitch competition. Um, and I hope to have more information about that very, very soon. Sweet. Yeah, I, I obviously don't go into you know the entire pitch, but can you give just like the like like the quick uh, ten word synopsis of uh, of what oh, that is? Little <laughs> Little Mermaid meets Misery. Uh, <laughs> man, and that's all I can say. Um, and this week, yeah. this week has been a very good week for the movie so uh, yeah I hope, I hope to be able to share more with y'all soon i cannot wait when uh i watched the pitch meeting live and when you were doing it i like i was honest to god almost on the verge of tears i was like i can picture it in my mind clark and it's gorgeous and i i cannot wait to see this thing come to life so very much looking forward to it uh where do you want people to to follow you to find you to do any of that uh, social media stuff that you want yeah to i i'm on uh i'm most uh active on instagram and uh twitter you can find me on twitter at underscore wolf like me uh wolf with an e and on uh instagram i'm wolfman's got nards and <laughs> that's all i got uh draw good fruit good night <laughs> uh, Dan, draw good fruit. where do you want people to find you uh, you can find me on Twitter at HBO2FrontRow and HBO2FrontRow.com. And Eric, where can uh, people shine at you? Uh, well, there's not much shining going on on Twitter, but I am there sometimes uh, at The Chimerican, T-H-E-C-H-I-M-E-R-I-C-A-N. I'm also on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews and on Letterboxd at Eric J-A-Y. And you can follow me slash the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Video Monster Pod. You can also follow me personally on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle because that's G. Uh, Jesus Christ, I am so fucking tired. It's I can't Jesus. even say the things. <laughs> follow me personally on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. That's G A R G Y L E because it's a gargoyle wearing an Argyle sweater. <clears throat> and Eric. If people enjoy That's this me. episode, what should they do? Uh, three things. Rate this podcast five stars. Review. Uh, tell us nice thing. You know, give us some give us some compliments. Uh, and subscribe so that way whenever new episodes come out, you know, very uh, sporadically, 
uh, either spread out a lot or all together at once. Uh, Nathan, you cut that out, my bad. Um, I've I've told you, dude, I do very tantric uh, episode releases. That is that is true. Yeah, Antrix and an interesting like, word to use. <laughs> you might say that the way that re- we release uh, the episodes is kind of like a boiler, where you have to dump it at a certain point. It's like it just builds and builds and builds, and you're like, dump. Oh uh, yeah, subscribe so that way when new episodes come out, you can uh, see them and listen. And we thank you. And Dan, why should they keep coming back? Why should they uh, care about getting notified of new episodes? Uh, they should come back for the ne- next episode where I'm going to have issues with yet another child actor and uh, sometimes they <laughs> back. <laughs> as well as future Stephen King related episodes. DanHatesKids.Podbean.com <laughs> Please renew my contract. Uh, <laughs> and the plot twist is that Dan is actually Cortland Mead. He is, he is Cortland Mead from the future. <laughs> He has been the whole time. You've been here the whole time. You've been there. <laughs> that would be the greatest twist of an episode ever. The, the plot twist is Dan your, actually is... Your middle is, name, Anthony. <laughs> the, the plot twist is Dan actually is just a nine-year-old kid. <laughs> you have that, like, Jack syndrome where you just... <laughs> yeah. Age very rapidly. Uh, and uh, be sure to join us in Discord where you can listen to us record these episodes live every Tuesday night, usually-ish. That's going to vary during our King series because uh, we have more episodes that we need to record than weeks that are available between now and Halloween. So uh, join us in Discord and uh, stay up to date on when we're recording. Uh, the link is in the episode description. So just scroll down wherever you're at and um, uh, come join us and be part of the conversation and part of the episodes. All right, Wolf, once again, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. Uh, Now you go have your absolute blast. That sounded just as wrong (laughs) as I meant it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, what a mic drop. All right, I too am out of here. I got to get to bed. (laughs) That's it. This this was fun, guys. Robert, good to good to look at your little tiny picture there for a little while. Hope you're doing well, pal. <laughs> yeah, I hope you enjoyed it, Robert. Cheers, guys. All right, all right. Night. See you, Dan. That's what it for this episode hey, of Three Monsters, <laughs> where we take movies and Stephen <laughs> King seriously. <laughs> but a very, very obviously not ourselves. Good night, everybody. I, I like the idea of just like keeping this going. Like you, every time you try to cl- like close the podcast, we just keep. All right. Well, that's <laughs> just everyone leaves and it's just me sitting here alone. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>